You're gonna dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You wanna get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. Welcome back to the program. In this episode, we conclude our two-part podcast with Walesha Shabazz and at length discuss the highs and lows of her 36-year career. Enjoy the conversation. And of course, it starts with you landing this position of editor at Stress Magazine. And in that experience, interviewing MF Doom along with MF Grimm, you mentioned KMD earlier. But what you didn't mention was your relationship with the first KMD album in college. Yes. Um, well, the interesting thing about that is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, A Plus, his house was close to where I lived in college. And he had kind of a study group at his home. So a few of us, uh, I was usually the only woman, but a few of us would gather and just mostly read books at his home. And it would be uh, me, Opio, him, of course, sometimes Dell would be there um, and a couple of other friends of ours who don't come from music. They were just, you know, people who would be there at the study group. And Dell, because he was, signed to Electra, right. he had the tape of the KMD album that never came out and was not supposed to come out. And so we heard it, we would often listen there at A Plus's house and they would listen to it just pretty much all the time and everywhere they were. And there were very few people who were allowed to have the tape and you couldn't take it anywhere or copy it so that it wouldn't be bootlegged and nobody could, you know, do anything with it other than listen. And I think part of that being that, especially in the Bay Area, it would have come back that it was Dell who had the tape because I don't think mm. he was supposed to have it. And they were very careful about not letting anyone have it. So there weren't copies floating around. It was just for listening. But we heard the record when it was actually supposed to come out and maybe even a little before. Most people heard the record years and years and years later. Does Dante Ross know this story? 
knowing how far you guys go back and knowing the relationship you have, is he aware um, that you had that bootleg? I'm pretty sure he knows that Dell had it and I'm maybe could have been that Dante is the person who gave it to him. Who knows? I don't know where he got it from exactly. Um, and Dell's not much of a talker, so I don't think he would ever even now say, or I don't know, I probably no one will ask him about this, but if they did, he might, he might give a flippant answer that wouldn't include the real origin of how did he get to it. But, um, I actually was with Dante recently and we talked about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. He was actually out here to do an event with Dell and I saw he and Dell together at the record store and, um, you know, we all go way back, but I actually did not know Dante very well. I I re-met him in front of Keo's house in the Lower East Side in New York during the Doom era. And that was when uh, Dante was living very close to where Keo was living. And so we would often run into him at the corner store or in front of the house or at clubs or shows. And almost every time I ever saw Dante, um, I was with Keo. And then years later, when I went to work for Muggs, he and Muggs were friendly as well. Um, and he and Alchemist are friendly. So occasionally uh, his name would come up at the Soul Assassin studio or he would right. be there very occasionally. I did see him there as well. So that was um, until pretty recently, Dante and I started forming much closer of a, of a friendship and just speaking uh, more often. Um, than ever before, really. And so I think it's been cathartic for both of us to be able to talk about Zoom and talk about KMD and, you know, talk about all those those days and times. And, you know, there are very few people who really knew Doom as a person um, within this business. And, and uh, Dante and I are the only two people who ever did A&R work for Doom. So it was interesting for us to spend the day together recently. And I thought a lot about that while we were together, that like we're the only two people who ever were allowed to have any kind of a, a hand in helping to choose what beats he would rap over or which songs would be on a final record or just kind of like arranging things. And I did co-production uh, with Doom. In Dante's experience, Subrock was doing the productions. Doom hadn't delved into producing quite yet. Um, but he clearly, you know, did remix and did, did studio work and production work with them as well. Um, and so, you know, it's a very lofty position because for the most part, Doom did his own A&R. <laughs> um, and, you know, some labels, I guess, were able to make some decisions, but usually Doom would just give you the master that he was pleased with and call it a day. I mean, he wasn't really into letting anyone in the record industry tell him oh can you change this or not say that or use this one he 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 wasn't into that he would tell him to fuck off when it come to war there will be some casualties manhattan is the game of death and cops and referees i'm dwelling on my life like i'm kevin from the wonder years a lot of us died and i try to hold back the tears Pouring beer 
I give them bloodshed instead Cause so many died, I have to pour cake New York is hotter than the collar It's so easy to die, but it's hard to make a dollar Screaming from the desert is the eagle, make it holler Plus we got the street sweepers, so run in fear If we can't have no money, then the block is getting clear My family call me MF, that mean math flows You better buy my album, cause you're grimming with no shows Nah kid, I'll be with the cutie in my house If you want me to do a show, then you'll put up 20,000 It was V, um, Virgilio Bravo, who was the managing editor of Stress Magazine. And he asked me, could I interview Doom and Grimm um, because they were relaunching KMD as a new group with he and Grimm as the rappers. Um, he asked me, could I do the in-person interview because they were gonna be in LA and it was in the Valley. So I took the day off work. I was working for Fox Kids, Fox Family, um, in Westwood, in West LA, and I had to drive very far to the valley to meet them. And I came in the house, I just knocked the door and they told me to come in. And I actually saw Grimm um, and he was just um, pulling himself along a carpeted floor. So I had never met him and hadn't really been introduced to the fact that he was in a wheelchair and unable to walk. And when I walked in, he was literally like, pulling himself across the floor to get to his chair and so I just saw him and I just automatically like went down on the floor and hugged him and I sat on the floor with him for a few minutes and we talked and then Zoom came in and he gave me a very odd look um and then I stood up you know and I talked to him and introduced myself to him and shook hands and then we just sat down and you know we talked about everything we talked about KMD and we talked about um, we didn't talk much about doom as doom because he was really at that time, the whole thing was the KMD re-releases and him and Grimm recording new music. And what eventually was the doom and Grimm EP of them playing chess, the picture of them playing chess on the front. Yeah. That those raps, I think were meant for this KMD project and it just kind of got reconfigured and then, you know, a lot of things change. And um, so they didn't brand it. They didn't brand the music as KMD, but the story is that Grimm uh, purchased a lot of the equipment that Doom used to record so his samplers, his keyboards, his mics, basically anything that was expensive. For the most part, Grimm paid for it. And when Subrock passed away, there was still a machine. I want to say that it's a regular SP-1200. And that's what Sub was working on when he died. And it had a lot of sounds and partial beats, and it had a lot of discs of work that he was working on. And so when Doom honed his skills as a producer, a lot of times Subrock continued to be a part of the sound because he had programmed some of those sounds and he had left behind a lot of beats that were either almost done or that he was in progress on. And so I think for many years, 
and definitely for a lot of solo doom stuff for sure doom was still uh using an sp i'm not sure if it was that one he used to bring one to our studio uh which was at my house in brooklyn it was my house and eventually became a like a pre-production studio that doom used for many years um whether i was there or not um what was the name of the studio back then oh we didn't have a name it was my home it was where i lived and no one ever came no one ever recorded there um a lot of the monster island czar stuff was recorded in that era but any vocals that they did were done at x-rays um studio and the only vocals ever recorded at our home was doom and me because he recorded my voice um i appear on mf Grimm's album downfall of iblis and i'm reading yeah. from the quran which is very unusual usually women's voices are not used um for those kind of things and so that was very avant-garde and that was a big deal and that was way before mad villain so whose was idea was that it was dooms. I mean, he, um, you know, we would often read um, and we would just read everything. Um, he wasn't really a practicing Muslim at that time, but um, he has been, you know, in many times of his life. And I think being around me, um, because I, I was at least more in practice in Islam than he was at that moment, we really kind of delved a lot into um, mostly Sufi Islam and reading like Rumi and a lot of the mystic stuff and like, you know, studying about like whirling dervishes and just Sufi mysticism in general. And um, so we were reading the Quran a lot. And, you know, sometimes I would, uh, sometimes if he was working, he would ask me to read aloud in general. Um, and so I think that it came from, I probably had read some passages aloud um, at his request. And then he probably said, okay, well, this would be great on this record. And the downfall of Iblis, um, Iblis is like a, a, a term for the devil. So he, you know, it made sense. Um, it made sense to include that in the album um, and with the cover and the way the cover was and everything, it just all made sense. And then um, when he asked me what name did I want to use? When I was in LA still, and I was working with Self Scientific, DJ Khalil, Chase Infinite, and all the artists affiliated with them, there was a crew called Solar Panel. And Chase and Khalil, and this guy named Frank Correa Gomez, had a label called SOL Music Works, and it stood for Sons of Light. And so Solar Panel was the larger crew. Um, it included um, my friend Zidon, who's Tupac's cousin, comrade, and he, uh, had a radio, big radio show in Georgia back in the day. The first time Tupac was ever on the air, the first time Outkast was ever on the air, it was Dedon's show. Um, and it was a pirate radio show. And so the Solar Panel, SOL Music Works derived their name from it. And it was Sons of Light, Allah's Reflection. And so when he asked me what name did I want to choose? And especially because I had just been recorded, you know, reading passages from the from the Quran. I chose the name Allah's reflection. And in the 5% nation of gods and earth, the woman or earth is the reflection of the man or God. And so 
it tied into, you know, all these culturally relevant things for me. And then also an homage to me being a member of the solar panel and the fact that, you know, everyone had used the SOL part because they were all men and I was one of the only women ever in the crew. So to be able to use the Allah's reflection part, it was a nod back to all of those cats from solar and to Tupac and to the whole legacy of, you know, everything with, with the solar panel. Um, and there, a lot of them are children of the Black Panthers. And one of them is Rasudan Daoud. His father was in The Last Poets. Um, and so the crew is very important and a big part of my life, um, even though music industry-wise, really Chase and Khalil um, were probably the only two that really made like a big impact within the music industry eventually. Um, Chase going on to manage ASAP Rocky, Benny the right. Butcher, Khalil going on to have all these gold and platinum records with 50 Cent and Eminem and Dr. Dre and you know he's won all these Grammys I think now he's won like 20 Grammys or something <laughs> back in the not day not too shabby we, not too shabby but back in the day we were just an underground hip-hop group and you know self-scientific is one of the greatest groups ever to come out of hip-hop and they didn't yeah. really have any success as as Chase rapping and Khalil making beats they were not financially successful or really even that big in 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 the scene but you know, Khalil's made these huge strides and Chase as an artist manager has made these massive, massive strides. And so they kind of got to win in the end, but you know, that was how I chose the name and that was what the name meant. And then I continued to use it when we recorded uh, Mad Villain much later and he wanted to use my voice as an instrument again. Um, and so, you know, those are the only things that we ever recorded was if he wanted to do a vocal real quick and he had brought his mic up from Georgia. But for the most part, he mixed a lot of records there in our home. He mastered a lot of records. He liked to do his own mastering. He taught himself and he was very good. Um, and he made a lot of beats, a lot of beats. And we made a beat together. We, I've, I had did, done one, one co-production with Doom um, and eventually Rodan took it years later after I was gone and recorded over it. And it was called Ruler of Day and Night. I mean, it's the, the Jones Girls um, sample, Nights Over Egypt. And I chose it. And it was just a record that I played a lot around the house. And Doom took during that era, like mm, food and, and those, um, as well as uh, Take Me to Your Leader. Almost all of those samples were things that I was listening to around the house, either on vinyl really? or on CD. Yeah, he took almost everything from those, from my, um, from things that I was listening to, which is not to say he wouldn't have sampled Anita Baker. It's not to say that he hadn't sampled Sade right. before, but it was that I was then, as I am now and have been since a teen, stuck in the 50s, 60s and 70s, and I rarely go beyond that. Um, I mean, I try to keep up on new music, you know, as it relates to like me liking hip hop. And but for the most part, my time listening to music is mostly um, oldies. And it always has been that way since the street gang days in L.A. And I'm very, very, very knowledgeable about music of all genres from the 50s, 60s and 70s. And I've been digging, you know, I've, I've taken a lot of really important people record digging before and people cats from Japan who come here just to dig. And one time I went out with Dell Domino and Pete Rock and Pete Rock's manager, Dex, who's my old school homeboy who used to work at D&D Studios. And Domino is like a musicologist um, and Prince Paul as well. And Doom was, and all of those people have always remarked that like 
that I'm that they've never known any other woman who knows as much music as I know and that they're always surprised at like my ability to like recall almost any record from almost any, any genre and be able to know like what's being sampled and who was that artist and what was the label and where was it and how was it and it's partially because you know my father played so many genres and he recorded from the mm. 1940s 1949 until 2017 my father recorded without ever stopping or taking any time off and in many many genres of music so that being the foundation and then me continuing on and also really and truly the gang era because we were in cars all the time and we listened to nothing but oldies from the fifties and sixties. My back in those days, we barely even went into the seventies. It was mostly fifties and sixties. And so, you know, I, what nowadays, like it became a trend for, you know, like all these cats to sample those records, um, those like doo-wop and, and soul and singing records from back in those days. And people think that they're like chopping up this like super obscure sample, but I know those records. Like I've been knowing those records. I've been listening to those records since I was a, a teenager, you know. So Same now, in, DNA. yeah, in this in this day and age, like you, it's you. You'll have a tough time finding a soul record or a record from that era that I don't know already. <laughs> Tell me if I'm OD and you the flow You made deals with these cats and keep sending dough So the three-headed said it, never get busted He's a man of his word who's yet to be trusted Beats and gripped it, multi-fast and crusted Sweating on keep like rusted Sort of metal type of fellow who sometimes spaz a white like Othello So at which point do you start producing under the name Metal Flowers? Well, actually, Grimm is the person who came up with the MF. Um, so Grimm, that's Grimm's creation. And, you know, he was a hustler. So he would often say that it stood for money folder or a microphone fiend, you know, because Grimm himself was, you know, very renowned at rapping, probably way more so than doing back in those days. Um, and so, you know, we would just play around with MFs. And um, I was very sharp and rough living in New York because a lot of times Doom didn't want to deal with the hard conversations. He wanted to get the money, but he didn't want to be the one, you know, negotiating with labels and different individuals who were buying beats or buying raps or trying to put these projects together. And when I came, Grim was going away to prison and then he was in prison. So Graham had kind of held down that role of being like the bad cop, if you will. So when I kind of took over doing a lot of those negotiations and business stuff for Dumoulin, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to just be quiet and pretend like he never talked to people and just be 
a recluse and all he wanted was to actually accept the funds and deliver whatever he was delivering for the music component. But when it came to like forcing the issue, he would tell me in private what the number was. You know, I would go back to him. So a lot of times I think people thought that I was a bitch or I was an asshole or I was mean or I was demanding or I was saying a price that was too high or too crazy. But I never, ever said anything to anyone that didn't come from doom. He just didn't want to be the one to say it. So if he told me, I'll only do this for 10,000 and I would go and these guys would cry broke and say, oh, I only have 5,000 and da, da, da. I already had that word from him. He was the one who said it was 10. So I would go into those kind of conversations, whether it was in person or in the, in phone calls or whatever, you know, we, back in those days, we really barely had email and we did hardly anything online. And Doom and I didn't have cell phones. So these were landline calls or sometimes in-person meetings. And he would sometimes have me go in person to collect money and things like that. But, you know, when these guys would start crying broke, I already knew the price that Doom had set. And when I left to go have that meeting or when I went to go make that phone call, that was my job was to make whatever they were saying turn into $10,000 because that's what he said. So I think people thought, you know, that I was aggressive and they often said that, or they would tell him later, like, Hey, you know, that lady's like, she's a real bitch. She's a real bitch. And she, that lady made me do this, or she threatened me. And she said that she would do this or that, or, and I was just getting to that $10,000 number by any means necessary. And so that's where the metal part comes in of like, you know, if I had to tell somebody like, we've already, you know, Doom's already started this and you told him that you were going to pay him whatever number he said. And the number is 10. So if you don't have that, since he already started, it's going to be a problem. Like, I know where you live. I know where your mom lives. I know where your studio is. We know where you work. We know your name. I'll come and get you. You better have that $10,000. Conversations like that frequently. So, you know, it was a thing of like being sharp and being dangerous. And also back in those days in New York, I never really was around any guns. Like Rodan had a gun charge and he went away for a while and Megalon had had something to do with some guns. But I didn't really hardly ever see guns in New York. And so when we all would go places together or certain places Doom would go, if his security guard, Big Ben, wasn't there, Ben Grimm, or if he was having me do road management, or if we were going out with all the Monster Island czars together because they tended to be real rowdy and shit would happen when we were all out. Doom taught me to hold the razor blade in my mouth. And so I would be the one to sneak the blade inside wherever we were going. And then when we got in there, I would spit it out and hand it to him or pass it to him. And so he would have it or other people in, in the czars would have a blade inside the party or the club if they needed it. So that's where the metal part came from. 
And then all the rest of the time, you know, I'm, I'm nice. I'm like a hippie lady. I cook all this natural food. I'm always reading cookbooks and going shopping for herbs and figuring out how I can grow my own food. And I love, you know, plants and flowers. And a lot of the, like when we did special herbs, like I had this book of my grandmother's that had all these herbs names in them. And I was like, yeah, we can keep doing this forever. I was like, cause I have a, a million names of herbs either that I know off the top or they're in this book that my granny gave me or you know, like everybody was always just noticing like that I was like always this like fresh, natural, like organic hippie lady. And so they was, that was, that's how the metal flowers name was, was that like, they were like, we have to give her a MF. I'm the only woman that ever had an MF, you know? And so he, they both, him and Grim were like, yeah, this is like a perfect, this is like a perfect moniker for her because she's so like both of these things. And then when we went to Boston, it was either Boston or Philly, but I think it was Boston. We had just um, started saying that name for the first time. And I had started like writing up all these different definitions of what MF could be and like give, showing it to Grimm and showing it to Doom. And um, Doom and I went to Boston for a, I think for a show, something. So um, ben was with us on that trip, but um, I also was there for some reason, probably to drive. Doom didn't drive. Him and Ben liked to drink and smoke or whatever. So they would, if I could, if I was there and I was in New York and it was something within the tri-state, they would always have me uh, at least drive. And then a lot of times it was just me and Doom if he just didn't want to have an extra person or he didn't feel like he needed security per se, because he felt like I was security a lot of the time. And um, we went and we drove and we saw this sculpture and it was like this huge flower made out of metal. And we were just walking down the street and we both looked at it and then we just fell out laughing like, okay, well that's it then. And then that was just the name. And I only ever used it for like naming my, the name as like a producer or whatever. And back in those days, sometimes I would sign off with it. And when we did the day by day, um, mem uh, the message boards for day by day, uh, when Doom and Grimm and Zars were all really active online and stuff, then that's usually the name that I checked in under on there. But other than that, I haven't really used it for much until recently I started making beats again. We shall now vote for a new world leader. I nominate Dr. Doom. All in favor, say aye. Aye! Oh no, this is impossible. Dr. Doom is master of the world. What do you think Doom taught you about looking at things through abstract and fluid thinking and putting things together that didn't seem like they should go together? You know, I've had people ask me that before, but I think that, of course, there's a lot of things that I did learn from him, but I think that he learned a lot of that from me because I lived such a free lifestyle and because he often felt like, okay, well, I'm in New York for this amount of time and I have to submit this record and I have to do this thing and I have to go to this place. And I would say, okay, you know, that might be true, but today we have a chance to go to a botanical garden and go sit out in the plants. Or today when we drive to Philadelphia for this studio session, we could stop here at this place 
and go to the ocean for a few hours on the way there. And he was always open to doing those things. And he was always into whatever it was that was anything like that. We could try a new restaurant and a new kind of food we've never had. We can go to the used bookshop and both of us put up some money to get this like extremely rare book. It's $800. Let's get this $800 book because no one's read this book and we want to read this book and we want to know what's the knowledge inside this book instead of going to the nightclub and popping bottles or instead of buying a truckload of weed to smoke or instead of getting sneakers that trip. Oftentimes we did that, you know? And so I think in terms of like a free lifestyle, you know, he had his life in Georgia and he had his son and he had Jasmine there to run the house and help him with his son, his son, Lord Dahu. Now she's not his mother, but she was there to help him with the household and help him with his child. At that time, they didn't have children. And at that time they were not married. So he had this, you know, structured lifestyle in Georgia where he had a studio, a basement room where he could go, but you know, is it time to get his son together for school? Is it time for breakfast? Is it time to go to the grocery store? Is it time to do X, Y, Z? He had that structured, I'm a dad life there to an extent. I mean, obviously he would go into his basement and just doom out for days on end if he was making a lot of beats or rapping or he had a deadline or whatever it was. But for the most part, he had to be present for all these family obligations and, and all these other things tied to you know the fact that he was a dad of a young son. And um, when he came to New York and I already had the building, and it was very unusual. It was in this big warehouse and there was no windows. There was a big metal door, ironically. And so when you closed the door, it was pitch black in there. And he said the acoustics were amazing. And he said that he could write in there like, and like nowhere else that he could ever write. And we had a huge roof and only us and a couple other people knew how to get on the roof. This is like a massive warehouse in Williamsburg right on the East River. And he loved to paint graffiti, but he didn't want to ever risk getting arrested. And him and Keo would go on missions painting sometimes, but for the most part, he would collect paint, I would collect paint, I would get paint from Keo, I would steal paint, I would buy paint and just have paint at the place. And when he would come up to New York, that would be one of the main things he would want to do was go on the roof and paint because it was safe and legal and free. And he could get drunk and paint and he could get high and paint and we could paint together or he could just paint by himself or he could go up there while I was cooking or whatever the case was like in Brooklyn, he had a free lifestyle and he learned a lot of that from me because, you know, I'm the child of hippies and like, even at my father's most like, you know, most like working all the time and even at my mother's most like I have to take care of these two kids and do all this stuff with the house it was always a very free lifestyle you know a lot of traveling and barter and like stopping throughout the day to smoke weed or stopping to play jazz or stopping to listen to Bob Marley or whatever other people had a nine-to-five life and no one in my family had that my mom didn't have it. My dad didn't have it. They didn't have it when they were together. They didn't have it when they moved house and were separate. And I never, I just never had that. And me going to jobs and doing nine to fives and stuff like that, I always forced myself to do it. But then I also would take my extra hours and live that hippie lifestyle during my free time. 
And a lot of the people that I've connected with that I've spent a lot of time working with and working for and people that I've been their chef or people that I've like had all these different roles with and have stayed close with for long periods of time, hieroglyphics, they have like that real hippie background, most of them. Mugs, the same thing, like very much like, you know, a very hard worker, incredibly hard worker, but also used to like this kind of free lifestyle of like, okay, I'm going to make these beats. We're going to go get some wine, um, right. smoke this weed. We're going to listen to like this weird acid rock record that I got. And then I'm going to go back and make some more beats. But it's never like people who come from that nine to five life and people who don't have that, that free love in their growing up and they don't have that hippie style in their, in their birthright or they didn't grow up like that you know, they have a different mentality about getting money and a different mentality about making music and their business reflects that. And I think for me, the business of music and the financial parts of it are the least important parts and living a free and creative lifestyle where you have autonomy about how your time is spent is the whole point of even being an artist in the first place is because you have to express yourself. You have to create. But then once you turn that to commerce, you can't become a cog in the machine. You can't become this person who's like a mercenary, you know, and I kept showing that to Dumoulin over and over and over as he started to get more financial success, as he started to get more money, as we started to do more deals, as he started to do more and more paid shows more often, I tried to reconnect him to that bohemian lifestyle over and over again and say, hey, you know, yeah, you can get money. Like, yeah, of course we're here, we're getting money. But like, that's not the end all be all. When you wake up every day, he wanted to do a deal every day. He wanted to get paid every day. We talked about this in the Village Voice. I was interviewed um, and Grimm, it's an article mainly about Grimm, but of course it touches a lot on Doom and the differences between them. Right. And one of the things that Grimm said and that I had touched on in response was that Doom wanted to make money partially because he was a father. And so he had a family he had to provide for. And he also provided for his extended family, his siblings, his mother, his, you know, he was always called upon to be a, a financial provider for this, you know, for a circle of people. Whereas Grimm never had any children. I never had any children. Grimm wanted to create this Black-owned label, and this comes directly from the Village Voice article, and I'll send you the link for it. Um, Grimm was concerned about changing the business of music and being a Black owner in the business of music and changing the paradigms and doing things differently. And although he was a big hustler and a big money getter in his other and former life, he never felt like that was the driving factor for him in music or in the business of music. Whereas Doom, before I came around especially, um, was very much a mercenary and very much like, okay, I'm like this creative guy and I do this like music that's a little different from what other people do. But end of the day, how am I getting paid today? Who's paying me? Who's paying me what? When am I getting paid? Where's the money at? You know, and like I said, it's, the difference was, 
he had a son at that time to provide for and then his extended family that he was called upon to provide for and providing, you know, for the house in Georgia and keeping a recording studio. And, you know, I guess all of it gets very expensive. And, um, you know, he was a, he was odd because his appearance you would think was like the last thing on his mind, but he was very much a low head and everything had to be polo down from head to toe, polo boxers, polo socks, Ralph Lauren polo, everything. And Timberland only and the North face excessively and um, the rare Adidas. And, you know, he was very much like coming from that New York state of mind of like, everything has to be dipped. Everything has to be fresh. I don't want anything off brand. I want to buy my shit at Macy's and the real stores. I don't want any discount, nothing. Like he was very much like that. I want gold and rubies in my gold fronts. I want, you know, the, he was very, um, it was, it comes from being, you know, in New York and in that time. And also like Cairo and like Muzz and, you know, a lot of cats that I've worked with, KMD had major deals. Now, you know, financially, they didn't see the same amount of money as some of these other people, but, you know, they came from having a, having a deal where the label was paying a lot of money for videos and wardrobe and hotels and haircuts and just any and everything. Now, did the fellas have to eventually pay that back out of whatever and recoup? They did. I think they maybe didn't understand that in those days, but, you know. Doom and, and Sub had and Onyx had major deal and major money behind them. So part of it came from that like New York thing. And then part of it came from the fact that he had been on, you know, been around this major industry shit and he had had access to the finest of, of everything that was paid for by Electra for that short time. And I think he got accustomed to that. And so, you know, and also just the shit is expensive. You know, you got to buy all this equipment. You have to have the best mic. And Doom was very avant-garde because he was one of the earliest people like you asked who recorded at our studio nobody only doom and me a few times but yet he had the best equipment he would he would bring it up from georgia and had special cases made to hold his keyboards and hold his sampler and his mic and everything that he was using and he had the highest quality of everything and all that shit cost a lot of money you know and so what grim didn't pay for once grim was gone away um then that was a falling on doom as well if something go wrong with the mic he got to buy a new mic we were always at um, Sam Ash or Radio Shack or Guitar Center or any kind of electronic store in any city we were because it was constantly oh I left this cord in Georgia oh this is I need a new thing for the mic I need this connector okay I, I, my keyboard is tripping I need this I need that I need a power cord I need some more what you know constantly in need of like all this electronic stuff and you know cost money and he was basically independent and so you know he had like a real strong desire to get cash and although I too you know I'm somewhat of a hustler I still was raised like much more like laid back like okay you know I'm sure we'll trade something that we need or somehow we'll get some money today or something we're gonna sell something or we're gonna go to this place and meet these people and it's gonna lead to some new money down the line but I always was like more so on that tip on the like let's live this life full of like enjoyment while we're also doing all this work 
Living off borrowed time, the clock tick faster. That'll be the hour they knock the slick blaster. Dick dastardly and muttly with sick laughter. A gunfight and they come to cut the mix master. I see E. Cole, nice to be old. Y2G Steve twice to threefold. He sold scrolls, low and behold. Know who's the illest ever, like the greatest story told. Keep your glory golden glitter. Speaking of all of that work, you mentioned appearing on Mad Villainy as a last reflection on Fancy Clown. What was your involvement with Mad Villainy? Well, I was in Los Angeles and my editor, DJ Soul for Mass Appeal, who's an incredible mixtape DJ and A&R and producer, all kinds of things. But at that time, he was acting as the music editor for Mass Appeal. He reached me. He said, are you in Cali right now? I said, yeah, I'm staying at my auntie's house in L.A. for a while. He was like, great. He said, do you know Mad Lib? And I was like, oh, yeah, I've known him for years. He said, would you be willing to write a profile on him for Mass Appeal. And then we'll send um, Lumumba to take the photos. And I had worked on Mass Appeal stuff uh, as that where me, I was writing and Lumumba was photographing and we've done it together very successfully. So I was really excited to go do that. So I did the interview with Mad Lib. And by this time I was already um, doing management and working with Doom very closely, spending a lot of time with him. We were very locked in out in the East Coast. And I just happened to be in LA for a bit. So at the, one of my last questions to ask Lib was, um, who did he want to work with in the future if he could choose you know, and work with anyone? And he mentioned Zoom as one of the people. That was my last question. So I turned off the tape that I was running for the interview. And I said, oh, um, I'm actually managing Doom's career right now and working very closely with him. And his face lit up. His man looks like a little kid. Him and Doom remind me, remind me of each other so much. And he was so excited. And I was like, I'm going to make it happen. I was like, we're going to figure it out. And we're going to do a record with you and Doom. I promise you. Okay, honey. And he gave a smile and we gave a hug. And I left. The article came out. I had turned off the recorder. So that wasn't part of the interview part. So I told Doom, I said, I said, yeah, there's this guy, you know, in LA and he's an amazing producer and he reminds me a lot of you. He also raps. He's done like these weird albums where he calls himself Quasimodo and he changes his voice. And I was like, but he's done like a lot of work and you guys remind me of each other. And I think you would become great pals. And I also think it would be a really good opportunity to make like an amazing record that would be really different from what people are doing. And at first Doom was like, what's the money? I don't care. I don't know who that is. He, I had to really keep at him. And then I finally was able to say like, hey, let's, we used to go to this one record store where they had some headphones. And so he came up and one weekend I was like, hey, let's go um, to that one record store. He was like, oh, we're going to dig for samples. And I was like, well, yeah, but I just want to hear some new shit too. So we went and I played him a bunch of stuff from the early parts of Mad Lib up until that point in time. Um, and he was like, oh shit. He's like, this shit is wild. He's like, I, I really like this. I, I really like this. He was like, this one is crazy. And he, he really just dug some of the beats. So then when we left, we went to eat and I was like, so... That's the dude, Mad Lib. I said, most, most of those records I played you, he produced those. And some of those were him. And some of those records, he made a whole group, like a whole band, a whole jazz band all by himself and made that record. And he was like, hmm, 
okay. And so he went away again, came back again. And then he was like, okay, I want to do something with this Mad Lib thing. He's like, I, I thought about it. He was like, I think we could do something real different. He was like, I think maybe we both might rap and we both can make beats and maybe make some beats together. And he's like, I want to try to mess around with some like instruments and stuff. And I just want to make some like crazy noise and just do this like crazy record. And I was like, okay, you see it. Great. So then he was with it artistically. I didn't have to sell that part anymore. But then we had to deal with Stone Storm. And they didn't want to pay. And at that time, granted, you know, he wasn't at that level where he had done like Adult Swim and big Nike and all this stuff. Right. But he was pretty, by that time, he was up there. You know, he he had done big records and people were really, really fucking with doing shit. So, you know, I had to go toe to toe with Chris Monock, Peanut Butter Wolf, who I've also known for years just from being in LA and, you know, from him managing Mad Lib and having Stone Throw and you know, but they wanted to offer such a small amount of money and they just really weren't willing to come up. And at one point, Zoom was like, you know what? It's on, it's on the other coast. I got a lot of shit to do in now why in New York and a lot of shit to do in Georgia. Fuck it. He's like, let's just throw that shit out. And I was like, no, no, please. Cause I had promised Madlib and Madlib is my real friend or he was back in those days before all this shit. And um, I gave him my word that I would make it happen. And I really wanted it to happen. So I told him, I said, look, as far as on your end, you don't have to pay me. On your end, you don't have to give me any percentages. You don't have to give me any fees. You don't have to pay the rent. You don't have to do anything. Don't give me anything because I really want this to happen. And I said, I'll try to you know, figure out a way for the label to pay me something. They should pay me shit, you know? And he was like, well, let's see what figure we can come to. So the figure that they, that they finaled on was so low. They really fucked up. They really fucked up because he decided to do it. But he was like, you know what? He's like, I'm not doing all that work of co-producing and producing and rapping for that tiny ass amount of money. He was like, this shit retarded. And I was like, no, you're right. It is retarded. And I was like, okay, so what do you want to do? You want to do the beast? You want to run? He was like, I'll just write raps. He's like, I'm just going to rap. I was like, all right. So Mad Villain was supposed to be both of them rapping, both of them producing, and both of them coming together to maybe back and forth on some Run DMC shit and to make some beats together, actual co-pro together, like flying stuff back and forth. That's what right. it was supposed to be. Like the J-Lib record. Right. And these people being cheap and not wanting to pay was what made that be the way it was. And although Mad Villain is one of the greatest albums of all time and has been heralded as that by so many important people in music and in business and just the fans in general, I don't think that it's ever going to be topped. I don't think that that time is going to come again. I don't think that we're going to have another doom. I don't think we're going to have another Mad Lib. And I don't think that we're going to have another me either because doom and I chose a lot of that stuff together. And that's the part that people don't realize. Like I'm really an A&R for real. I have been 
an uncredited A&R on numerous records that people love. I've chosen many, many important beats and productions. I've chosen samples for a lot of people. I've helped people craft their raps. A lot of people's rhymes have been based on me or based on things I did or said, or, you know, this is not a new thing. It's just that that time, you know, it was like lightning in a bottle on that record. But I actually did, first of all, make it happen and make the introductions and make it come together and help with the deal. And I was there at Stone's Throw on the sessions. And me and Doom are the ones who chose a lot of those beats together. And the fact that they refused to give me credit for that is crazy. And the fact that I was credited only as a project coordinator, whatever that is, they chose that title. Egon said, and I'll never forget the exact words. He said, well, A&R credits are as rare as hen's teeth here at Stone's Throw. So we won't be giving you one of those. He's like, besides Peanut Butter Wolf is the A&R and I might be the a and And I was like, mm, okay. I was like, but I a and this record though. So they chose to call me what they called me. So it's like project coordinator, project consultant. I don't know. I'd have to look at the art. But wouldn't that imply that I was paid by Stonestra if I'm the project coordinator or the project consultant? Because funnily enough, I've never received a single penny from Stone Throw ever in my li- entire life, ever. That's to this crazy. Day, to this day. And they have re-released this record so many times. Now my voice is on Fancy Clown. That's me. Doom, yeah. Doom said, I'm doing that record where it's going to be me and Vic Vaughn like going at each other about the girl. And right. he's like, so I want you to be the girl. And I want you to call. I want it to sound like you're on the phone. I said, so, okay, well, how are we going to do this? And he said, well, call my tape machine. Because he had a landline in his studio in the basement in Georgia. And he said, call that and just leave a message. He's like, just leave a long message and just say whatever. And I'll chop it up and that'll be the, that'll be it. That'll be the voice. And I was like, okay, you're not going to like give me a script or tell me anything of what to say. He was like, no, just, you just use your voice. He's like, your voice is perfect. It's going to be perfect. Just do it. I said, okay. So I called and I left like this long message. The girlfriend erased it. So he reached me and he was like, oh man, he's like that message that you left. He was like, that, that shit was perfect. It was incredible. He was like, but she deleted it. And can you do it again? Do you remember what you said? Do you think you can do it again? And I was like, I don't remember what I said at all. And I was like, but I'll, I was like, but I'll do it. I'll try I'll call again. And he was like, okay, call right now, call again and leave it and do it right now. And then I'm going to record it. And then I'm going to chop it up. And I was like, all right. So I did it again and he loved it. So I only, all that stuff that I said, I had not heard his rap. I just knew the concept of the song. He gave me no direction. And I just said these things that I thought, okay, well, he can make this into like this conversation and it'll just be like, okay, like we're talking back and forth on the phone. And then it turns out that like I'm dating Vic and dating Doom and he's, it's this whole thing. And he did it and he made it into that song and that's me and that's my voice. And we came up with the concepts together and I wrote that and it's, it's my, so regardless, even if I wasn't the A&R, even if I 
didn't introduce them, even if I didn't put the deal points together, even if I didn't help him select the beats to be finally used. Of course, he and Madlib had many discussions about that too, and they chose what, you know, what was happening. But really, I mean, he and I did a lot of it together. If I wasn't there at the sessions, whatever, I still should be paid. I'm on the record and I speak and I wrote it. So I should have publishing from it and I should have gotten some kind of compensation from them. So not only did I do all of that, but at the end of Doom and I's relationship, both business and personal, I had promised to do the road management for Coachella because Mad Villain performed at Coachella before the album ever even came out. Peanut Butter Wolf did a DJ set and then Doom and Lib got up and they did a performance. And Coachella was huge already by that time. I had covered Coachella as a journalist the first year it launched. This was years later. So it was massive. I went, I traveled with him. I went to LA. I went down there to the desert. I attended everything. I was there that day, the day of. I'll never forget. They had an Airstream trailer for everybody from Sonsoro. And Pharrell was performing at this Coachella. So I was standing outside with Doom and Madlib just talking because it was very stuffy in the little trailer. And so we were, you know, outside for them to smoke or just hang out and just get a little fresh air, what you can get a fresh air in the desert. And Pharrell kept walking by repeatedly and like just was staring over at us. And I was like, wow. That is Pharrell looking at for a while. I thought Pharrell was looking at me. I really <laughs> did. I was like, oh, I must be so pretty today. I was like, Pharrell, wow, okay. So I realized after it was like 10 times and it started to get ridiculous. I was like, okay, let me go talk to Pharrell and see what is happening. Why does he keep walking by staring? And then when I got close to him, I realized he wasn't looking at me, he was looking at Doom. And he was fanboying and having a total doom groupie freak out and was too shook to come over and say, I'm famous ass Pharrell from Nerd and I'm I'm a huge fan of your work, you know? So I went over and I was like, yeah, hey, I, I, I'm, you know, at that time, my name was still Miranda. I was like, yeah, I'm Miranda. I'm, right. I, I, I do, you know, business management for doom. I said, let me go over there and just double check. And then just hang tight and just stand right here for a minute. And he was like, oh, 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 really? Okay, well, all right, well, I'll be right here. So I went and I was like, yo, Doom, I was like, that's Pharrell from Nerd. And I was like, he really just, I know you don't like shit like this. I was like, but he really, really just wants to meet you. And is it okay? You know, can I bring him over here real quick? So he, he said, okay. And I brought him <laughs> over and they talked for a, a little minute. And I mean, you know, it was just like probably like made Pharrell's life, you know? Um, and Doom was like, Doom was like, I kind of think I know that dude, but I don't really know. And I was like, oh, believe me, you know, because we, me, Doom and who, and the, the woman who ended up later marrying him and being his widow and all that stuff. Um, right. We used to roll around in Georgia together a little bit. And one of the times we did, she drove and I was in the back um, and he was in the passenger and we were on the road for hours because he lived like in the way far part of Georgia and he had to drive to Atlanta for a little show. And the Khalees record had just come out, um, Kaleidoscope. 
So we listened to it on repeat over and over and over in the car. And then Doom and I went on years later to also just be huge Khalees fans and just listen to any and everything that she put out. So that was my reference with him because I figured he probably doesn't even really know nerd and he probably doesn't, you know what I'm saying? But he'll know later when I explain to him that's the guy that produced a lot of that Khalees stuff. And then he'll be like, oh, oh shit. Okay. Okay. And sure enough, when we did talk about it later and he was like, yeah, tell me again, why, you know, what, do I need to look into that guy? And should I know more about his music? And I was like, he's, he did that Khalees work. And he was like, oh, okay, shit. All right. All right. And then, you know, um, I went to LA with Doom the day after Coachella. I had promised him no matter what, that I would finish Coachella and finish the road management because we had stopped working together and we had stopped being sharing the space in Brooklyn and we had stopped dealing with each other in every other capacity. And when that happened, he asked me please to not quit right away because he felt that he really, really needed me to finish all the mad villain shit. And even though it went against my better judgment, because I had already gone unpaid, he and I had an agreement that was, I offered to him to do everything for free with for Mad Villain on his side. So he didn't renege or not pay me or do anything that was slick or that was bad. It was just the arrangement. They didn't never pay me nothing for nothing. And I knew that Coachella would be more of the same. So I did it even though I didn't want to. And even though I felt very uncomfortable um, being in hotel rooms with him and being out on the road and also being under the auspices of Stone Throw and having them arranging everything and basically like where I was going to be and when I was going to be there and where I was going to sleep and what I was going to eat was all going to depend on fucking Egon and to a smaller extent, Peanut Butter Wolf, people who already didn't like me. Um, and who were probably so glad to see my back that they couldn't contain themselves. So they made that Coachella trip as shitty for me as possible. And we got to the hotel in LA. I've never told the wallet story in public, but fuck it. I'm going to tell the wallet story right now. The statute of limitations is over. So we got to a hotel in LA. It was going to be my last day with him anyway. I was about five minutes from my auntie's house, right off of Wilshire. And uh, we had left the desert city where Coachella was. The event had gone off without a hitch. He was gonna go do something more with Stone's Throw that day or have some kind of meet up with Mad Lib or whatever. And then he was gonna only stay a few days and then fly back out probably to Georgia. So we get into the hotel room and he says, I'm going to do a shower and get fresh and things. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to figure out about some food and, you know, just do whatever. And I'll see you in a bit. So he goes into the shower and I see this wallet on the desk of the hotel. Now, again, I've not been paid by anyone for anything. So, of course, I didn't get my percentage for the uh, Coachella show fee, whatever he got paid. Uh, I didn't get it from him. I didn't get it from Jasmine. And I didn't get anything from Stone Throw or even an offer of anything from Stone Throw. So I see this wallet. And I'm like, that's not Doom's wallet. 
whose wallet is that? <laughs> what the fuck? I open the wallet. It has like almost $3,000 in $100 bills inside of it. And I said, you know what? Fuck it. I look around. I knock on the door to the restroom and I tell him, I'll be right back. I'm just going to step out into the hallway. So I take all the money out of the wallet and I tuck it into my bra. I take the wallet itself and stick it in the pocket of my jeans. I go out the door and leave the latch so I can walk right back in. I walk down the hall. I look around to see if there's any cameras. I take the wallet and I throw it all the way down the hall to the end of the hallway, like where there's this like emergency exit staircase. And then I run back in the room and close the door. By that time, the phone is already ringing in the hotel and it's the hotel management or a maid um, manager of the maids or something and calling. I answer the phone. And they say, oh, um, well, guests may have left something in the room. And uh, do you see anything? And I said, oh, let me check. I said, um, the, the person whose uh, room this is, they're in the shower. Um, they came straight into the shower when they got in the room. So uh, I can't check the bathroom right now. Um, and I said, but I'll knock and see. So I made this big production of like knocking and asking him and looking around the room. And then I came back a few minutes later and I was like, oh, sorry. I was like, I have nothing here. There's nothing here but our stuff. Um, and I said, but you're welcome to come check the room if you'd like. So they were like, oh, yes, please. So they send a maid. The maid, I felt bad. She like got it in the closet and under the bed and was like looking everywhere for this person's wallet. And then she was like, oh, no, I know fine. I know fine. And then she left. Um, and then they didn't call again or anything. And so I told Doom, you know, I'm going to go um, up to the roof and get some sun. And so I went upstairs and I laid out, there was like a pool and lawn beach chairs. And I called my auntie and I was like, auntie, I'm a few minutes away. And are my cousins there? Is everybody there at the house? And it was the weekend by that time. And she was like, yeah, we'd love to see you. So I just told him, I went downstairs and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm very close to my auntie house. And I said, why don't I give you, you know, some time and you can, you know, make your arrangements with Lib or whatever it is you're going to do and, you know, call home, check on, you know, check on your family and do all your things. And we'll, we'll get back together, you know, tonight for dinner or something. And, you know, I'll be back basically. And, um, I grabbed my shit and I walked up Wilshire to my aunties with $2,800 and hundred dollar bills in my bra. That was the only money I ever got kind of from Mad Villain. And I never saw Doom again or spoke to him again in my life. So not only that, but I didn't listen to Mad Villain for at, really? least, at least for 10 years. I didn't listen to any Doom records, old ones or new ones, ever. Not one time. Unless I was in a store. He started to get so famous that sometimes his music would be, would be playing in a restaurant or a store. And if that happened, I would just quickly exit and just leave. So people don't understand that, first of all, I knew that Doom was dead before it was announced. If you look on my Twitter, he passed on allegedly on Halloween of 2020. And on, in November, I put up a picture of Doom that our friend Fresnel took, 
Still Life NYC for Nell Morris. And I said, I don't have any words now, but here's a picture of Doom taken by our friend for now. And I left, I left the internet and I, I did a mourning for Doom. I didn't talk to people or talk on the phone to anyone or have any emails or do any social media or go out in public. I did actual real mourning for him and I did it in my home for almost a year. And I was uh, there at the studio, which is also my home and Noah the Flood was there and he was cooking up some beets in the front and I was cooking in the kitchen and he came um, to the stove and he said, there's something going on. And he was like, your computer is blowing up and both your phones are going crazy. And he was like, something is happening, really something crazy. I don't know, but uh, can you check? I know, you know, you're not trying to look at the stuff, but can you check and just make sure, you know, whatever's going on and, and also track, can you turn everything off so I can finish, you know, recording and doing, doing the stuff I'm doing in the studio. And I was like, yeah, yeah. So I had a feeling of someone else um, that I thought might've passed away. And I had been having really bad premonitions and feelings about that person dying or something bad happening to them or ha them having an accident. So I just made like a prayer real quick. And I was like, please don't let it be that person uh, because I can't, like I, I physically can't handle it. Um, I can't handle it. Uh, Cause like I said, I knew Doom was dead even though no one ever told me I knew. Um, and I was in mourning for him, you know? Um, and when I looked at all the devices and I saw hundreds of texts, hundreds of DMs on every platform, hundreds of emails, like the phones were almost dead from all the notifications. They were almost out of battery, both phones. And it was uh, New Year's Eve and or whenever that was, New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, and the quote-unquote public announcement had been made. And everybody was contacting me either for condolences, people who knew me personally, people that he and I worked with together. And then there are very nefarious and awful people who immediately were sending messages, not just to me, but to other people too, asking if there was anything of his that they could buy which I think is disgusting and deplorable and awful and just subhuman of them because literally the world just was learning that he was dead. And that was the first thing that they thought of people I haven't spoken to for years, people that I didn't even probably have good relationship with in the first place, people mm. who might've already owed me money for doing stuff or what have you. Mm. And they either came to me directly right away or sent emissaries to hide behind to try to see if I had anything to sell them. Disgusting. Disgusting. How do you think the person, if you're dead and doom, how do you think that's giving you a space to grow yourself bigger by taking the best parts of their personalities and trying to incorporate them in your own life and character as part of this mourning process you've been talking about? It's been for with both very bittersweet and also right before my father passed on, he passed in a in a March, right around his birthday, which was March 2nd. Cecil Taylor, my godfather, and for whom my little brother is named after, who was my father's, you know, 
counterpart in music for decades and decades. And they have most of my father's famous early records of jazz are with Cecil Taylor. Cecil Taylor passed very close to my father before my father did. Um, and so he also was a family member and I was just kind of gathering myself, especially about like stealing myself to talk to my father and other group members to try to see, you know, what I might be able to do to like reinvigorate Cecil's music and how we would, uh, as a family, you know, celebrate him and his legacy. And he left without heirs. He didn't have children. Um, and then my father passed and, uh, my father and I, um, you know, very similar to Dumoulin. I hadn't spoken to my father in a long time. And he was um, not a good father ever, but he always was very important uh, in music. And it's, he's, you know, he's in my bloodline. And um, for some reason, I never have been legally married in the United States. So I never changed my name and I still have my father's last name. Um, and so, you know, I stopped using it in the industry because it had hampered me so much. He had had problems with so many people in high levels, like, um, the people who run Naris and the Grammys. And one time I was up for a job at Jive Samba and I didn't get it because the guy kept looking at my resume and he realized I was Buell's daughter and he got me out of there quickly and never called me back. But before he realized that he was going to hire me and it would have changed my life, um, a lot of people hated my father. He was an asshole and a very difficult person. He just, you know, was an amazing and brilliant musician. But in his personal life, he was notorious for being a very, very mean and cruel and awful person. Um, and being his daughter, you know, it was hard because he hated women so much. Um, and I always had to bear the brunt of that. So when he died... I hadn't even talked to him in so many years. It was like, I didn't even really know what to do or say or how to feel or, cause he kind of was already dead to me in many ways. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, I had to deal with the will and I had to deal with my stepmother illegally receiving all of his royalties and everything to do with his music. I even went back after the will was issued. I don't know where my father was buried or when, or if he was cremated. I don't know anything about a funeral. I don't know how he died. All I know is a lawyer sent me this document and my stepmother immediately changed her last name back to her maiden name, got rid of my father's name right away, sold a bunch of property right away. And she received everything. I received literally not one penny from my father who was a millionaire and I didn't get the royalties, which are legally mine by law. I'm the blood heir. And uh, I believe it was someone in Billie Holiday's family that changed this in this country because she, and actually she's my father's ex-girlfriend. They used to make music and record and perform and shoot dope together and all that stuff back in those days. Um, one of her had to be a nephew or niece or something because she also had no heirs and no children. They went to court with the pros, um, which is the publishing um, organizations such as ASCAP, BMI. Uh, now there's CSAC, but back then there was only ASCAP and BMI and there's Harry Fox Agency, just different 
agencies that administer royalties. And they said, I'm blood related to her. So why should these record labels and these different people be the heirs of her legacy? I should be. And so I'm not that unique in this. For example, Gil Scott Heron's daughter, unfortunately, is going through this and it's public. I wouldn't speak about it if it was private, but it's been public. She's spoken about it on Twitter. She somehow has a brother who may be a par partial sibling or something like that, where they share the father and, and not the mother. Um, or maybe it's her full brother, not really sure, but same thing. She's been robbed. She receives nothing from her dad from his legacy, from his royalties, from his music. She has literally nothing and is barred somehow legally from doing things like a documentary about him or a book, or I don't know exactly what their scenario is, but I'm in a very similar one. I went to my stepmother and I said, you know, you can have all the money. You can have all the properties. He gave it to you in the will. You know, I, there's nothing I can really say or do about that. I said, you lived with that awful man for so many years and he was always so abusive probably to you I don't know because I didn't know you guys most of my life not to mention that you had to sleep with him and be his wife for all those years and I said so you deserve all that money really you do but run my royalties run that record label give me my shit she gave me nothing she gave me nothing and had a lawyer send me a rude email about basically like not directly contacting her or whatever. So I haven't even gone in and like, I've had a couple people who recommend to me that I just go into all my father's records and put all the publishing in dispute and put my name on everything. I haven't done that yet. I haven't gone into mad villain and gone on to Fancy Clown and put myself on it to put the publishing in dispute. Right. I had a lawyer when my father in Doom was alive, long time ago, close to when Mad Villain was all done and wrapped up and had become so popular. And this lawyer was salivating at me suing Peanut Butter Wolf and Stone's Throw and Doom. And he wanted me to sue my father. This is while he was alive and wanted me to sue my father for back child support. And he said, your father has so much money. There's a lot of precedent. He never paid your mother hardly anything. And you could easily get a big, big financial windfall from him just for when you were a kid, not to mention like, who knows about other things in the future, but you know, I really want to sue everyone. And Doom was alive. And even though I wasn't in touch with him, you know, occasionally we passed message kind of back and forth between friends and I had no ill will towards Doom. And while he was alive, I never wanted to do anything like that. Even if it was about Mad Villain and Stone's Throw, I didn't want to do that. And, you know, even now, like, I don't want to do that with my stepmother. I don't want to do it with Doom's widow. I don't even like to think about Stone's Throw, especially because it came out pretty recently that Med and all these other artists on Stone's Throw had never been paid or had been paid like these tiny amounts of money, not just for Mad Villain, but just for a lot of the recording that they had done at Stone's Throw. It's all over the internet. You know, there's, you can, anybody can pull this up and find out this information. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not backbiting. I'm not spreading gossip. I'm not making up or putting extras on things to make them look bad. They made themselves look bad 
And when I went into recently, this is also the craziest part about the Matt Villain shit and the Doom shit and the legacy and everything is that this guy, Will Hagel, emailed or DM'd me a long time back. And he said, I'm writing a book about Mad Villain for 33 and a third. And I wanted to talk to you. He's like, because some of the Stone Throw stories aren't adding up and everybody keeps bringing up your name. And I really want to interview you. And I was like, okay. I was like, somebody's getting paid to write a book about Mad Villain that I've never made one single dollar off this record. (sighs) Like, I never heard of this guy. He's not one of my friends. I know almost every writer and every journalist from every generation. He sounds like a white man. I said, but okay, fuck it. Let's do it. So I got into it, into the interview with him. But also, and he said this in interviews about the book, that I A&R'd the book because I put him together with Doom's younger brother who declined an interview, but at least I made the introduction. I put him together with Dante Ross who did do an interview. I put him together with... X amount of people who knew Doom personally and had worked with Doom and recorded with Doom and people who had done labels. And I just, I gave him this whole rundown of people and direct connections that he never would have been able to have to do this book. So I don't get paid for the book. I don't. And somehow he sent me a copy of the book and I think my landlord stole it, which is so fucking weird, but I never got the hardcover. It sold out. Now there isn't even one for me to get. So he sent me a paper cover. So all I got from that was one paperback cover of the book and the fact that now because a white man wrote about me in a book now everything I did is true it's been a lie you will never go back and find an article a retrospective on that villain mentioning my name you will never see an interview from me because everyone said that it was a lie They said, I didn't do this. I didn't A&R the record. I didn't introduce them. I wasn't involved. Some people say, I didn't know Doom. There's no pictures of Doom and I together. How can I prove that I knew him? These all are things that have been said in the industry, in publishing, in media. One person, Dana Scott, interviewed me for, I believe, Hip Hop DX about Mad Villain. And this was at the request of Dart Adams, who's a big um, journalist and fact checker and a big um, fan of my work. When he first started getting into it, it was because of things I wrote in stress that got him interested in becoming a music journalist, you know, and he's been an advocate for me. And also my mentee, my former student, Tim Hotep Aku, who's an incredible writer and journalist and podcaster and just music business guy. He used to manage Droog and he's done all this stuff, but he was my student. He played Doom in one of the Victor Vaughn videos and he knew Doom personally and he was around in the era with Doom and now he's a big writer and journalist. So he's also been an advocate for me. And those are two black men, you know, and they've always said, you guys are wiling. Like she's one of the most important people. And you saying that what she's saying is not true is very disrespectful and it's a lie. And they've Mm. always advocated for me. So Dana Scott did this interview at Dart's request. Hip Hop DX said I didn't pass the fact check. So I'm not included in the article. Probably kiss me later that evening, I should be early. Matter of fact, give me back my bracelet and my sherlin. I'd rather waste it or give it to your girlfriend. She did let me stab it last week while you was working. Remember, I vacation out to Maryland. I duped the maid Carolyn. She made me throw the towel in. Like all foul men, the time I hit your arms off, I told her knock it off. But she had to set the rocket off. Ain't enough room in this fucking town. When you see Tin Head, tell him be ducking down.
they probably asked someone from Stone's Throw to verify what I said, or they asked some other man to verify, and that person said, no, she's lying. And these white boys did this shit for fucking years, and they got away with it, too. Not only had they kept me from being a part of the history of this record for so many years, but they have turned my voice down every time they re-release that record. They turn, there's some versions online without my voice. Doom didn't want that. Doom chose to use my voice as an instrument. Doom used my voice the way he did and made the song the way he made it precisely the way he wanted it done. So for them to do that while he was alive is disgusting, but for them to do it and continue to do it now that he's not with us anymore is reprehensible. And they're disgusting horrible people for that. They're disgusting for not paying all their artists. They're disgusting for not paying people that it's music that they sampled over all these decades and their families. They're disgusting for not paying me, but they really make me fucking sick for changing a record out of spite or jealousy or whatever it is that motivates them. Changing the record the way Dumoulin wanted it to sound, Allah. that means you're going against God. It means you're against God. You're the opposite. Why in the fuck would they do that? Because who am I? I have no money. I never got to be able to come and become an A&R. I've never had an A&R position at a label. Because I could never say, I A&R mad villain. Look on the credits and you'll see my name. I couldn't say that because they refused to give me the credit. They never gave me any cash, not one penny, nothing. So I never had that resume to go to a major and say, I, a woman, was the artist and repertoire executive on the most important independent hip hop album that's ever been made to this day. going on if you are still listening to this episode and enjoying the podcast why not become a patron of fly fidelity at patreon.com slash fly fidelity becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week it also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter you'll be able to access exclusive content to you including patron updates offers and discounts a monthly secret podcast early access and so much more Do you ever think about your legacy as one of the only women to general manage as many record labels as you have? Well, I certainly do. Um, I mean, I think that I've done a lot as a record executive. And then also I was able to rise uh, very high as an editor and work for a lot of publishers and different media outlets. So to have done both of those things, um, I think is pretty impressive for someone um who didn't never graduate from college and um you know I kind of just worked my way up into all of these different um positions so I mean I'm very proud of it and it's something that I'm hoping that I can do more um kind of mentorship and educational stuff in the future 
Um, I've worked with some young women and I have mentored a lot of people, um, mainly in publishing to get them into starting to become music writers or hip hop journalists, or um, if they wanted to learn to edit, or I've taught a few people marketing and publicity and press relations and that side of the business that I've done marketing and promotions. Um, and I mean, I, I would really like to um, let that be the kind of thing that I go into moving forward and to um, hopefully get a real nonprofit going. I've done some nonprofit work um, and here in California, you have to work affiliated with another nonprofit that's already established for, I believe, one year, and then you can apply uh, to do your own. So um, that's something that I'm really hoping would cement uh, my legacy and solidify it is if I'm able to do more education. I have taught and spoken on panels at different colleges and hip hop seminars and gatherings and I really enjoy that kind of work. I really enjoy teaching um, and I enjoy mentoring and kind of think that that might be like the kind of crowning achievement for me since my trajectory has not been to make money or to get rich uh, or to line my own pockets, so to speak. I think, right. you know, going into this sort of nonprofit work full time, but surrounding music because, you know, young people really do want to enter into this industry and you know they should learn some of the ugly parts about it from the beginning to make a you know informed decision is this what they really would like to do and college isn't really something that can prepare you for most of it and not all young people want to become rappers or even only producers or you know not only musical artists but they want to work behind the scenes and it can be very hard to break into and I think that that's something um, really valuable that I can offer and something that would extend my legacy would be to be able to establish some sort of school or youth program after school program type of thing or really just any type of like nonprofit based organization that's about teaching especially young women but just young people in general about the music side if that's what they want to do but also um, the business side. What about business in the past? Having navigated this role of general manager at various major independent record labels, what could you tell me about those experiences? Well, it's a very, um, it's a position that really holds a lot of responsibilities because you're kind of the bridge between the owners themselves and everyone else. The, um, vendors and consultants and the artists and the artist managers and whomever you hire to handle your press and public relations and radio promo and just literally every single solitary person kind of has to come through you um, and you have a lot of responsibility and also when things go wrong you know the owner especially when the owner is a recording artist themselves um, they're normally not going to take the blame for something they're normally not going to have the responsibility of oh well this much money was spent on this project and then it didn't make back that much money or there was some kind of problem with manufacturing or whatever the case may be if something goes wrong 
you can pretty much guarantee that that's the person that's going to hold the responsibility for it. Whereas if the album does great and everything is perfect and the, um, you know, that gets more press or more radio than expected or gets a magazine cover or sells out all the vinyl copies, then the owner, especially if they're a recording artist, <laughs> if they're going to say, Oh, my label. And yes, we did this. And the, the, the label did this amazing job and everything was, so great that's why the record sold so many copies and so it's kind of a it can be a little bit prickly and difficult because um in particular uh, most of the labels that I've worked at have been artist owned and operated so there's a bit of ego there sometimes and also often kind of a kind of something to prove I guess because many artists owned labels fail so for those who have them and have success with them you know, it does take a lot of work and they do kind of have to prove themselves in an executive capacity. Um, and so it, it can be a very challenging position. And a lot of times, um, like with Tajay and I at Clear Label, it's just he and I. I mean, we've had maybe one or two interns over the many years, but for the most part, he and I work the same way where we just don't, I, I guess we, it's not that we don't trust people, but we just know that we'll do the best job and it'll be exactly to the standard. He, he knows and trusts me well enough that if he tells me, you know, I, I would like this done this way, he knows that I'll be diligent about it and that I'll do it in the same manner that he would and with the same ethic and that, you know, I won't um, be lackadaisical. I won't take too much time. Um, I try to, you know, represent him the best I can because he is the owner and this in the same way when I worked for Angelus and it was Smugs and Chase and Khalil I wanted to do you know the best job possible um and just to represent them well professionally and especially anytime working with like the outside distributors or meeting with people or anything that was facing out I always really wanted to um represent them well and have people say oh well their comp their company is well managed and well run and they have good people working there who really know their stuff and especially being a woman you want to do a perfect job anytime you can because right. if not or even sometimes when you do a great job or a perfect job you can easily become the fall guy if you will or people can then point their finger and say oh well it wasn't done to perfection because someone let a woman do it. I've mm. heard that before. So, you know, you have to really mind your P's and Q's when it comes to that and do literally just the best possible job that you can. Looking back, what would you say are some of the practices from working albums over your career that you hold on to, I guess, most tightly as values that, you know, are still within your work ethic today? Well, to me, always the most important as someone who is behind the scenes is that you're never the star and you may work the hardest and you may work the longest hours. You're not going to be paid the best. You're not going to be given the applause. You're not going to be given the recognition when the tour comes together or the album does really well, or people critically acclaim the music or that artist is on the cover of the magazine or whatever the case may be that's out in the front, out in the public eye, you're never going to get credit for any of that. So you have to be self-assured and 
know that, you know, the work is the reward and doing a great job and having artists feel at ease and having them uh, have less to worry about and just be able to enjoy their creativity and make music and make art. You know, that's really the job. Make it easy for the artists. And artists are often um, neurotic. Uh, sometimes they're very ego-driven. Sometimes they're very introverted. Um, and they don't actually like to be among people. Some are very, very private. They don't want their creative process to be observed by others. And so, you know, it's a very, kind of a tightrope that you have to walk because you do have to present certain things to them for approval and you do have to ask them certain questions. And sometimes as the executive or as the person representing the label or as the person who's going to be doing the work on the project, you have to keep pushing when they don't feel like talking. You have to be the one to coddle them when they have a, you know, a childish or childlike moment right. or when they feel a tantrum or when there's something that they're, you know, not happy about that doesn't even concern the label or anything to do with the actual work, but the artist is in a foul mood or they just are not wanting to talk to anyone that day. Sometimes you have to kind of be the bad guy. And sometimes you have to say, you know, I, I understand that you're, you know, in your creative bubble and you're writing and you don't want to have this conversation today, but we do have some, you know, deadlines and some rules that we have to hold to. And it can be very hard because then sometimes the artist feels as if you've turned against them or if you're not on their side, which is not the case at all. Usually it is that you are on their side and you want to protect them and you want to make sure that, you know, if they're expecting a certain release date, that's going to be tied to their finances as well. And you are the person that has to keep track and say, okay, we absolutely have to have this over to the mastering lab today or else it's not going to meet the release date. And if it doesn't meet the release date, it affects the label. It affects my job. It you know can affect a lot of things, but also for the artist, if they're expecting a check or a payment or something tied to that release date, and I don't push the hard line to make sure that they actually meet a deadline, then they're not going to be paid at the time that they expect it to be. And that can create, you know, a whole host of other problems. So I think just being friendly and amicable with the artists, letting them know that you're in their corner, building a good rapport with them, knowing a bit about them, knowing about their family situations and knowing, you know, are, are there children? Is there a baby on the way? Is there a parent that might be needing caretaking are there any health issues? Are there certain things? Some might be scared to get on an airplane. It's good to know a little bit about them and know those kind of things before you, you know, have to like book this right. big tour. And then you learn, oh, well, A, this person has to take care of their parent. And also they are not willing to get on an airplane. So now I have to figure <laughs> out how to get them to 30 cities without a plane, things like that. So it's good to just know the artist because they're people. And they sure. are people who have to be treated, you know, especially well, because it's not so simple as when you're a manager of people who are working a nine to five job there, you know, you have metrics and you say, okay, if you did your job, you know, you, you worked all your hours and you hit all your marks and I'm going to give you this raise or whatever, you know, the, the management style is very different when it comes to that. When you're dealing with creatives, anything goes. I've, really just seen and heard it all so 
I think that having that good rapport is one of the most important things and remembering that you're not the bad guy because sometimes the artist will make you feel like the bad guy and then you'll turn around and then the label owner will also make you feel like the bad guy and someone else who a vendor who hasn't been paid yet or someone who expected something and it's not going to be happening anytime soon or maybe not at all or you know all all in one day all of these people can say oh you're the bad one you're the bad one and then you have to go home and say you know what it's not true I I helped the artist I protected their interest I helped the label owner because I made sure the artist delivered their music on time and I helped you know this person and that person even though they said that I was the bad guy. I have to remember that I am good right. and I did a good job. <laughs> all of that weight, all of that work, all of that responsibility you're talking about, that's a lot of weight. Can you give me an example of an album that you worked at one of these labels we've been talking about that was the heaviest weight in working with and working on? I mean, I think it may have been um, the... Mugs versus just the album at Angeles um, because that was the first thing I worked on when I got there. It was the first release on the label because the label had been recently formed and recently had gotten distribution. Um, and it was, you know, the pressure of, well, first of all, you know, dealing with Jizza, I had worked with him before when I was at G Street and I'd worked with many Wu members in some kind of capacity. But for this, it was like, you know, Muggs as the sole producer, just as the main artist, right. launching a label, launching a record like that independent with none of the usual things that Jizza might expect. Now, he's very down to earth, very humble guy. He's, he was never difficult in any way to work with. Um, and he... I think had a you know complete understanding of like that we were a small staff and a new label and you know that things weren't going to be at a big office or you know the budget of certain things might not have been as high as things he had done in the past but he and Muggs were very very close um, friends and the topic of the album being chess they actually really played chess together before for many years and both That's are right. very very accomplished chess players and just ahead featured with Muggs on uh, the first Soul Assassins album, I believe, and they worked together numerous times. So that helped it, helped the situation and, and made the made the job a bit easier. But, you know, I just felt the weight of like, well, you know, this is Wu-Tang and Cypress Hill. And like, this is the, this is launching this label and pretty much like everything is going to cornerstone off this launch and this release. And so it was a little scary and, you know, I, I, we were, I had never dealt with um, the distributor before. I believe that Chase had. So Chase and I went to some different meetings and, um, you know, with Fontana, which is the independent arm of Universal Music Group, or it was at that mm. time. Um, and that was our distributor. And so, you know, I'm like, I probably got a little nervous before those meetings. And also when I, this is a major indie, you know, when I've done things with um, Tajay at Clear Label, which is kind of like a, side by side with Hiro. I never actually worked for hieroglyphics um, directly per se, at least not for their label. Uh, but there was no big distributor or anyone that we were like having to have meetings with and kind of get approval from or figure out numbers with. And so me going up to what they, they call it the Black Mariah, that's the building that Universal is in, going up to that building with Chase, you know, I felt nervous. I felt very nervous <laughs> because I thought, oh my God, like this is, 
I've interned at majors before, Warner Brothers, Priority, um, a number of other uh, major labels, but I had never myself been the person to like, you know, go and stand up in the meeting and be a partial decision maker or, you know, stand behind uh, an owner slash CEO, which was basically the roles that Chase was serving. And so it helped a lot that he was with me and that I was, you know, that I wasn't alone in those meetings, but I felt pressure for sure because I just, I wanted such an amazing album, one of the best mm. hip hop albums and one that I always still run back and listen to still to this day. And, you know, the music was so good. Timeless. And, yeah. And I really wanted to make sure as many people as possible heard the record and had access to buy the record and that we were able to complete at least one, you know, really good video that could be seen everywhere all over the world. And, you know, at that time we were just, just getting into, um, you know, videos being viewed more on YouTube than they were on actual television. And we were only just on MySpace. We didn't have any other social media yet. And we were really kind of pushing the, cutting edge of even promoting a label and albums on a social media platform. And Chase and I were both very proficient with MySpace and we were, a we were able to build up a really good following um, for the label on the site. Um, but, you know, that was kind of a, a new frontier of like, how do you push music on this thing and who's here and are they listening? Are they watching? How do we, um, right. You know, the tech, the tech on MySpace was really not great. So it was, you know, it was kind of um, a challenge because things were kind of going more online, but not quite there yet. So we were kind of like treading water on that side. And then on the other side, some of those more, you know, old ways of selling music and promoting it were kind of dying, like literally while we were doing this label and doing this record. So, you know, it was... Um, it was challenging, but I think, I think it turned out very well. And the, um, the video that we put out was astoundingly good. And I felt like the album was just incredible and amazing and people all over the world loved it. People all over the world got to hear it. And I think that, um, although Angelus was only around for kind of a short period of time and did release, um, three LPs through the label, um, I think that it set a foundation and a tone for like some of the things that Muggs is doing now with Soul Assassins and um, where he's doing all this merch and music direct to consumer. Um, I think that those experiences that we had at Angelus, um, I mean, clearly Muggs has like all the music business experience in the world, but a lot of it was with majors and a lot of it was with backing and a lot of it was with investors and uh, funding and so you know this kind of DIY thing I think that those uh, those few albums worth of time spent us all working closely together at Angelus kind of gave like a bit of a blueprint and I think now what he's doing uh, with Soul Assassins and the direct-to-consumer stuff is like amazing and incredible incredible so, yeah yep Castle Queen C2 if Black takes on C4 then White could play C4 I must put in time to get mine, many hours to earn power. 
Like the ashy hand piece of rear owner that broke flower. I can't be a broke nigga, bitter and sour. Selling CDs on the corner, the sunset gower. A small fry nigga in the baked potato world. Sizzling in some beef full of grease like Jerry Curls. Uh huh. Shout out to DJs who kept it real. Shipped a few on the dial, but some never broke the seal. Fuck them. Stick to college radios, mix shows. Storming university with freestyle, sick flows. Might give a lecture about your rap texture. MC B-Boy, DJ slash director. The name was a bell that rang through the hall. Pop up is the tag on the bathroom stall. Check it. This language is so captivating. When we lose a rap nigga, the news is devastating. Whether to the prison or grave, you know this rap shit was built from the strength of those that hunger and crave. My clan got rhymes for days to be skilled and paid. Most of them can't escape the solar rays. You mentioned the pressure in pushing that album, this being a, a big moment for yourself and Jizzer and Muggs, of course. What about Self Scientific? Of course, they're coming off the heels of their debut album. What can you tell me about working their second album? Well, same thing. You know, it was the second album on the label and it was um, their first time having a music video. And so I remember just that, like, I remember this moment where the director had submitted the cut and everything still was on tapes at this time. And Muggs had a big screen and a couch in the uh, office area at the studio and Khalil and Chase were there, Muggs, Earn, and I was standing behind the couch while everyone sat down because I knew I was going to cry because I had been through so much with self-scientific and working on the self-science and just, you know, hoping that it would go so much larger and wider than it did which was not due to the record at all it was you know due to the distribution and just how underground it was and right i just wanted you know a really wide success um for their record and seeing that video and just knowing that we were going to get it played in some kind of way on television was like a huge milestone and it was super emotional for me to see um to see it on the big screen and I do remember getting teary-eyed and I was like standing back behind the couch when all the fellas were sitting down watching and I was just like okay I have to keep my composure as much as I can but also like in this moment like feel this happiness for Chase and Khalil and know that you know this is going to take um this is going to take them to a wider audience and people might be seeing self-scientific for the first time since this is like the first real music video and, and it did I, didn't it yeah no we got it played on mtv too and it did open them up to a wider audience and you know at that time khalil was already doing the major league production so it wasn't that and chase had already done you know huge um things as an executive like working with all kinds of big labels and big artists so it wasn't, you know, so much of like individual success for Chase or individual success for Khalil, but just that everybody in LA was so behind self-scientific because they're the best, like the best duo. They're the gang star of LA. They're the comparisons. I mean, Khalil, you know, everyone loves Khalil's productions and now he has like 20 something Grammys or whatever, but Khalil and Chase together is a very special sound and so to have this 
whole city behind you and all of these people, many of whom are famous, some of whom are wealthy, a lot of whom had already legit, legit made it in, in different forms of entertainment. These are the people who would be like cheerleading for self-scientific. And so, you know, just seeing them go up that rung and knowing this was the first time that they were going to hit certain stores because it was distributed through a subsidiary of UMG and it was going to be at retail that self-scientific had never been at retail on before. And so, you know, it did, it did what it did. It, it definitely did something more than everything that had done before. But still for me, you know, I really wanted them to have much greater success um, as the group because individually they've had incredible successes, like amazing and astounding successes. But I just wanted to see self-scientific be a household name um, because I really, I just think, you know, I think they're the best. I think they're the best group. Yep. <laughs> what about Mali Empire? Talk about Mali Empire. Sure. Well, Another artist-owned label, um, Noah the Flood, my friend the architect, um, who's produced for, God, everybody, Coolio, Makami, the God Fahim, uh, Opio from Hieroglyphics, um, just everyone. He came for a meeting when I was living in Oakland, and he said, oh, I got this record, it's Trill Life Mathematics with this guy, he's rapping out of Dallas, Texas, and it's, it's, it's such an amazing, incredible album, and I was like, okay, well, dope, I'll listen to it. And I had the CD and it was that weird time where like the computers didn't have a drive for a CD anymore. And I hadn't um, been driving or I, I just hadn't had a way to listen to the CD. So it just kept sitting on my desk and it said Noah the Flood. I looked at it every day for months. And then um, I moved to a different part of Oakland and I finally heard the record and I was like, oh, wow. I was like, this record is crazy so I got in touch with architects and I'm I got in touch with Noah the Flood whom I, I had never met or spoken to up until that point and he was on his way to do a show with the architects um A3C in Atlanta and it was going to be you know like a really big deal and he had also not just released the um the Tro Life Mathematics record but also had recorded private stock um, produced by Dirty Diggs. And that record has Planet Asia featured on it as well in the song called The Gratuity. So I actually chronologically finished that record first and then he finished um, Trollife Math with The Architect, but Trollife came out first. So there was a big controversy um, and Nas had taken the album cover that Noah the Flood and The Architect used and he used it right around the same time and also Kanye West at the also very same time used a sample identical to a sample that the architects had used and used it in the same way it was very very hard to say mm. that these weren't being referenced especially with the Nas because Noah the Flood had been featured on Mass Appeal which is owned in part by Nas and run by his brother Jungle um, in conjunction with some of the other owners and flood had been on mass appeal, like maybe 20 times or something like that leading up to this point. And this for me was the nail in the coffin. So the art being the same art and the Kanye thing happening at the same time, one day flood woke up and this news about this had broken wide and it was huge cover stories on 
Complex Magazine and Up Rocks and it got picked up by all the like dozens and dozens of sites and translated into all these languages like hey Nas and Kanye stole from these like you know underground cats and this independent stuff and it was like a wildfire and he woke up and he had all these sales on the record and he just out of nowhere became a name and there were a lot of eyes on him and you know he had to continue to um to produce at this level and you know, Dallas is a pretty small market and he's not from there, um, but he had been living there for quite some time. And so since I knew that he and Gary were going to do the show at A3C, I asked Flood, would he want to come to California and um, set up a recording studio and do some touring stuff um, and kind of put a whole like, you know, label together and kind of like put our heads together and offer all the different things that we both were doing together as one company. And he already had this idea for the Molly Empire and he had a few artists that he's worked with off and on a group called the Untouchables, which is Kin C from uh, Louisiana, Casablanca, who's also from Texas by way of, um, I think also Louisiana, maybe Florida. And then Jay Holly, who's from Queens, and Noah the Flood, they were a group called the Untouchables. Um, right. They put out an underground album that was very well received. And Kinsey is very well known and Casablanca has a following. And so it was kind of um, the Molly Empire was like this kind of larger kind of a crew. But then also uh, Flood is a producer. So he was unbeknownst to everyone for years it only just recently started to come out that he was the one making the majority of the productions but, um and so the molly empire could be the productions team it could be him as a producer it could be the label it's a company we do all kind we do mixing and mastering and music marketing radio promotions graphic design um just you name it we we offer it we do it we've put together tours and done bookings and promoted tours and everything that I do and offer like writing artist bios and press releases and just any kind of, you know, writing and editing and copywriting that other labels might need or independent artists need, or, you know, I, I do all those things myself and have been for years. So we kind of just collectivized and created this um, company, but for the most part, you know, we're releasing Flood's music and we've, just he and I alone with no investors and no outside labels have put out 17 projects, uh, most of which Oof. are on vinyl. That's a lot of records. And we've only done three to date or maybe four to date working with outside labels. Um, we've, we've worked with Copenhagen Crate. Uh, he worked with um, Darap Winkle um, out of the Netherlands on one he just recently did another one with Copenhagen Crates. Um, and we worked so. with D-Styles from the Beat Junkies on one called Creme de la Creme. But for the most part, it's just me and Flood. And we are manufacturing and distributing and doing fulfillment of his product. And I think we've sold to, last time I counted, 29 different countries all over the world. And we've shipped thousands wow. of orders. And it's just he and I in a studio and a warehouse and post office and you know whatever whatever we put together so you know it's something that is I think unknown really exactly how much of it all we do together and how much of it just he does or just I do and you know we're some of the very very few people um who are doing 
their own manufacturing and distribution and fulfillment on that level. Um, and we also worked um, on Vic Spencer's The Cost of Victory. So I did the manufacturing, distribution and fulfillment for that, for his tapes, CDs and vinyl. And I think as far as I know, I'm the only woman who's ever done that or who does this type of, of work um, on a grand scale like this and on all formats like this. Um, if there are other uh, women-owned labels or women who are operating these types of businesses, I'm not aware of them. There probably are in other genres, but in hip-hop, as far as I know, there are none. A lot of people might not know that in addition to having written for magazines and doing all of this work you're speaking of, you're also a qualified screenwriter. Where does that passion for film come from? Well, I grew up in Hollywood. My auntie Hildy uh, worked for Harold Ramis, who was the director for Ghostbusters. And she worked on a lot of his films. Um, so she was deeply entrenched um, in Hollywood at the time when I was born. And she helped introduce my mother to someone who was working on a movie called Shampoo, which starred Warren Beatty and Goldie Hawn. So I had just been born and my mom's a big like hippie lady. And so she um, had a scene in Shampoo, which gets cut here on American television, but it is on cable and it's on the VHS copies. And I guess DVDs, I'm sure now exist of this. Uh, and so she's at a bar and she's smoking a spliff and she's breastfeeding me. I'm a tiny baby. So she has a joint in her hand and then also her breast is out because she's feeding the infant. So this is why the scene doesn't appear on TV because right. <laughs> American <laughs> television thinks those things are somehow they shouldn't be seen or there's, those are bad things. You can't show people a baby feeding or you can't show them smoking a joint. So I was, I don't even know, I might've been just barely one years old. And so I have a little statement that I get on my social security paper that shows that I got paid $500 um, to appear in the film. And um Love you know, that. she's really young and beautiful in the scene. And it's a really different scene because, I mean, this is my mom in real life. Like she would have done this kind of thing in real life. And she told me not that long ago that when they were on set filming, you know, they kind of just gave her the instructions of what they wanted her to do. And then they gave her a fake joint. And she said she got really, you know, upset. And she was like, I'm not smoking a fake. This is bullshit. I'm not smoking this. And she pulled out her right. own. And she smoked during the scene. <laughs> <laughs> That's my mom. That is my mom in a nutshell. So I kind of got to be, you know, famous as an infant, if you will, right. I guess. And then, you know, we lived in the Hollywood Hills and um, Princess Leia was my neighbor three doors down, Carrie Fisher. So like on Halloween, oh. my brother and I would go trick-or-treating and knock her door and she'd answer in her Princess Leia costume with her hair in the buns and have like these really fancy chocolate bars for us. And, you know, we would see her at the corner store and there was like a lot of stars who lived um who lived in the Hollywood Hills we kind of lived in the funky section because my father was you know a jazz musician and a studio player he didn't have movie money or like big rock star money so we lived kind of in the like lesser part of the hills but still you know you would see all these Hollywood people all the time and so I mean I started doing that kind of writing um when I was very young and I just you know I've always been a big fan of movies and the mm. same auntie who worked on Ghostbusters and all those films. Um, I kind of got that passion from her for like documentaries. And um, one of my best friends who I call my sister, her name is Rachel Ramis and she's 
uh, now a director and she's um, done a lot of television, but we worked on a film. Uh, that's how I met her. I did publicity on an independent documentary she made about women in hip hop called Nobody Knows My Name. And she nice. also works with the Directors Guild of America. And so I've like learned a lot about scripts and film and television um, from being around her and just, you know, being, helping her with various projects over the years or doing like whatever, whatever she needed done, digitizing footage or just, you know, organizing what parts of a documentary will have some, some voiceover or some script or kind of just working like as an ad hoc producer. And I've worked on a, a lot of other different um, film projects as well. Um, and I'm just like a movie. I love documentaries and I love books. I'm just a huge reader. And so I've always kind of thought of things that I write. I always kind of picture them as like a movie or a TV show or a documentary. And I think to myself like, okay, well, what would this person do and what would they say and how would they say it? And so, I don't know, it's just something that kind of I've been playing around with since, since a child, I guess. And being that kid where my dad was always on a sound stage or he was recording for the X-Files or for Disney or my auntie was working on a movie and my, you know, her house or my grandmother's house would be like covered everywhere with like part of a script with red, red line notes. And my mother wrote a couple screenplays and my auntie dabbled in writing screenplays for a long time. My cousin wrote a couple and I just like everyone in my family has like this Hollywood bug and it was just always something that was around. So I think it's just something that I picked up and I am, I am, you know, right now everyone is on strike. Everyone is on strike. The writer's guild is on strike. The SAG after, which is the actor's guild here is on strike. The director's guild is kind of still on strike because they're holding with the other unions. And so right now you can't do anything in film or television or even working on a script or starting to write something or in none of it, you can't touch any of it right now, or it will be invalid um, once the strikes are over and people get back to work. So it's something that I'm hoping to um, do more of in, in time, whenever whenever the unions get the deals that they're holding out for. And I hope that they do because they really deserve much more from these industries. And I am pre WGA, which is the writers guild of America and as an essayist and nonfiction author. So I'm eligible to become a member and to become a screenwriter or to work in a writer's room on a TV show or to write a book that can be made into a film or a documentary or a TV show. So I'm at this point, along with tens of thousands of other people holding until all the strikes are over. Are there any plans to turn this upcoming book you're working on right now, the time she faced doom, of course, into a film or, or maybe a docu-series? Is that something you've been thinking about? Well, it's definitely something that I consider, which is why I'm holding on the book. Because again, if, if I even go back and change something that I've already written with right. regard to that book, it would become invalid as a future, um, as a future piece of writing that could be turned into a film or television pro prospect. And right. I do think, you know, the era uh, that I was there working so closely with him is perhaps his most important era. I mean, you know, we worked together on 
not just Mad Villain, but also uh, Take Me to Your Leader, King Ghidorah, that came out on Ninja Tune and Big Data. We worked together on the Victor Vaughn sounding record. I uh, was around and helped him behind the scenes with the Ron Sayers mm, food record. Um, and then obviously, of course, um, the Mad Villainy record. And, you know, I think that that run of his is solidified. And, you know, so I don't, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't want to write about it and have it be only a book because I think that, you know, unfortunately, especially younger people, they just don't read as much as my generation or the generation prior to mine. I just, you know, I mean, my, my nieces and nephews are extremely smart and really brilliant, all of them, but I don't just often see them walking in with a book or I don't walk in often and see them holding a book reading, like how you would always catch me always with a book in my hand. You know, so I think that like having something that's a documentary or a docu-series or a TV show is more so the way to teach, you know, the youth about this history and those, you know, nine or 10 odd years um, and that run of his music. So, you know, I think it would be a good documentary. I think it would be a a good um, docu-series for TV. Um, and so it's something that, you know, I can see in the future um, that hopefully it would get translated into other formats besides just a book book. Definitely. Keep your holes in check. girl and she wants me to duka i told her i'll come scoop her around eight she said that sounds great shorty girl's a trooper no matter what i needed to do she'd be like on his own throne the boss like king cooper on the microphone he flossed the ring average mcs is like a tv blooper mf doom he's like db cooper out with the moolah i let her get her outfit just to cool her off she said niggas ain't about shit i wonder if she meant it i doubt it the way it be in her mouth she can't live without it can't live with this, handle your business Villainous, stay on a scandalous, whole shit list One pack of cookies, please, Mr. Hooper It's fun smacking rookies, he is the Look like a black Wookiee when he let his beard grow weird old Brown skin, it always kept his hair low Rumors has it, it's an S-curl accident was always known to keep the Can you maybe talk about your influence on what would have been the recipe behind the inspiration for mmm food? Oh, I mean, you know, I, I cooked, um, I cooked a lot for all of them around that time. And I had been um, developing some recipes based on um, a recipe that I found when I was reading some books with Doom and I researched and I found this to be the first ever recorded recipe in American history. It was the African-American recipe for hoe cakes and that the um, enslaved peoples would finish the work for the day And they would take the hoe that they used in the ground when they were planting crops and wash it off, heat it in the fire, and that would become kind of a skillet. And they would put um, some grease on it and cook kind of what was basically like a cornbread batter. So it was almost like a cornbread slash hot cake type of thing. It was called a hoe cake. You would remember that from the food um, songs and titles. And so it was something I actually 
took the original recipe and then I had made some different flavors. I had made some sweet ones and some savory ones. And I was playing with a business plan and an idea to kind of have carts selling hoe cakes in Manhattan. Um, so I think it was Doom Curious and Graham had a session. And so I didn't attend the actual recording session, but I sent a lot of the different hoe cakes and sauces and butters and syrups and stuff that I had created, jams and such, um, to the session. And everyone loved it. And Grim, you know, thought it was an amazing idea. And so that was definitely part of it. And then around that time, right around our recording studio in Brooklyn, uh, which is where Doom would come up from Georgia and we would work there. It was my home, but also his studio and his office and label when he was in New York. Um, there was a grocery store in the neighborhood, which was Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And they had this huge, like, metal and wood, like, bucket thing. It was huge. They had one in the front by the door and one in the back. There was, like, a dry goods section. This was, like, a very throwback grocery store, like, leftover from the 19-somethings, the very early 1900s. And so Doom would always remark about those baskets because people were meant to do their grocery shopping and maybe get a few extra cans of food and leave them in the baskets. And this wasn't just Thanksgiving or holiday or Christmas time in this particular store, something to do with the ownership of the store. They did this year round where they were trying to always raise funds and gather food, pantry items and canned goods to feed people in Brooklyn. And so I think it was part of the thing that got him considering not just the title of the album, but also like, you know, Doom was very concerned with like the basic necessities of life and that people have food, clothing and shelter. And so it troubled him, you know, to see people hungry. And he just thought about that a lot. I think that like, you know, we would be out in Brooklyn and we would see people and they would, you know, stop and ask for money or ask if we're, you know, coming, coming from a, a restaurant or coming from a store oh, you know, could you, could you guys maybe spare something to eat when you go in? Could you maybe bring me out something? And those kind of requests always really touched him. And so seeing those baskets, I think he got the idea of like, hey, I want to do this as like a tour and an album where not only is it called mm, food and not only does it have these themes and the song titles and everything, but I actually want to feed people. And I want to do a tour and I want them to come and have to bring the canned goods. And you can't even, he was, this is what he originally said. I'll, you know, use verbatim as well as I can to remember exactly the way he said it. But he said, I don't just want you to be able to come to my show on this tour and just pay money and just get a ticket and just be able to come. He said, that's not enough. No matter how much money you have or no matter what kind of ticket you buy or what kind of guest or VIP or whatever, he also wanted them to bring food, period. He expected you to bring a canned goods, something for the people that you would leave at every show. And then, you know, that he would just have that in every big city where he performed and then the food could be distributed from there. Then from there, he went to Ron Sayers and put together whatever tour concept and ideas and the posters. And there's even a film and a video about the tour now that you can watch. It's even on YouTube. So all of that I was not present for. But all the behind the scenes things and dealing with the recipe and talking about the titles and all that stuff. And um, 
you know, it was just something that he was very adamant about and very passionate about that he was going to help people by feeding them and giving them direct mutual aid. And it was very avant-garde. And I don't think anybody else has done anything like that, especially not on a national tour level, not that I can think of or not that I'm aware of, maybe in some other genre again, or maybe people have done fundraisers and given out, you know, money to charities and things of that nature. But as far as actual food, I think that he's still the only one to have done it. Being so close to that project and the songs on that album, do you have a specific favorite song? And did did you guys have any notion that the album would be what it became? I mean, I definitely knew from hearing it that it was going to be a huge record. Um, At that time, Ron Sayers wasn't quite the cornerstone that they are now because they really built a lot of what they became off of the popularity of that record and off of the affiliation with Doom, in my opinion. I mean, I know you have like their core people from Minnesota um, who have always been on the label and such, but I really think that that record really solidified Ron Sayers and allowed them to, you know, grow into the independent powerhouse that they became. So I wasn't, involved in uh he dealt directly with um Brent Sadiq on that on right. those negotiations so I wasn't part of any of the business of this record but I felt that it was a very special record and the time that it encapsulated and the, the music that we were listening to and the stuff that he was sampling uh the Charday, the Anita Baker the JJ Fad just we were just kind of there like in the mid to late eighties, very early nineties. Like that was the vibe there at the pad in Brooklyn. That's all we listened to. And it just kind of crystallized into this record. And I always thought that it was just a great album. And I mean, I, I think that it's really stood the test of time. I mean, you can put that record on today and listen to it anytime and it's just it's going to touch you the same way um the same way that it did so I'm not even sure if I can say that I have like a favorite song on the record I would think that the whole record is um I I would think maybe the whole record is my favorite (laughs) it's one of those albums that's so perfectly sequenced from top to bottom as well isn't it Definitely. It's the way it's put together is kind of like just one long song. You don't have to like think about, oh, I'm going to skip around or unless you really want to play one record over and over again. um, You know, there's no need. You just put it on and vibe out and it's like a perfect album. I was looking through the liner notes of the Victor Vaughn project the other day and the first name I see is your name. What's your relationship to the Victor Vaughn project? You know, that's hilarious because I didn't even know my name was in that record. (laughs) Love it. Um, I mean, that record was a trip. You know, he he told me he had these guys and, you know, that they, he didn't even tell me about their background. I had no idea that they were huge in electronic music or any of that because he didn't care about that stuff. And he may not have even known exactly who they were. And he was just like, you know, he's like these beats, man. He's like, you know, I promised these guys this record and they've already paid me and I got to get to writing. And it's like, you know, can you maybe help me? And we'll just like drive around and listen to these beats. And 
we tried in the house and he was like, I got to get out of here. The walls are closing in on me. <laughs> we went to a rental car and um, drove all around Brooklyn and all around Manhattan and parts of Harlem and the Bronx and listening to these beats. And I'm so sorry sounding guys, but some of the CDs got thrown out of the window like Frisbees and at the house, some, a couple of them got used for coasters and it was hundreds of these beats and we were really hard pressed to find enough to make an album out of, you know, he felt that they were off, off mass would be probably the way he would have described it. And, you know, there's even references to it in the actual lyrics. Like when he said, sounds right. like all you can do off it is river dance. That's what he, you know, and he, he says something, I think in one of the ad libs or one of the songs, like, Hey, Max, I don't, this beat, I don't like this beat. Can you, you got another one or something like that. You know, it's, it's in the record. It's not a secret. I'm not like revealing a secret. And we loved these guys. He loved these guys. Their house was like, you know, a studio slash apartment. And it, once he got used to being there and he got friendly with them and they learned like what he liked to drink and what he liked to smoke and what kind of foods he liked to have and stuff, you know, they were like a, almost like a fraternity house over there by the time, you know, he got really insular with them and became, you know, cool with them. And he spent a lot of time there and the sessions often ran long. I did not participate in these sessions. I would drive him and I would ask him, you know, are you situated? Do you have everything you need for the day? Are you all good? Because at this time we didn't have cell phones. And so there was no way to um, coordinate anything. So it was either for me, sit in this kind of like frat boy type of environment and <laughs> all day, maybe all night, um, and listen to him, you know, do the same song over and over again with these beats that neither he or I really loved very much. I just couldn't listen to these beats anymore. We had already listened to them enough. We're just picking the ones, narrowing it down. So I used to tell him like, hey, you know, I'm going to be outside. And I had a truck, like a white panel truck that I would rent to bring him to these sessions and keep it for a week or however long. Um, and so I would just sit in the truck and listen to the jazz radio station. It didn't have a, a CD player or any way for me to listen to any music. We didn't have cell phones then. There was no laptop. There was nothing to actually do. So I would bring books and I would finish a book and then find one of Doom's books and then finish Doom's book. And it would still be not done the session. And I would just tell him like the farthest I'm going to go is go grab a slice of pizza from there's like a place two blocks down. And other than that, I'm going to be right here. And I would literally sit in this truck for the whole day and sometimes most of the night wow. listening to the jazz radio station while Doom made this big record. <laughs> I remember that truck so well, man. I spent a lot of time in there. You've talked in the past about choosing samples for Doom and, and, and when to chop a sample and where to chop a sample. Can you speak to your practice as a producer now? Well... I mean, I only did that one co-production with Doom. I mean, he got a lot of samples from my crates. And when we lived in Brooklyn, well, I lived in Brooklyn and he would be there when he would be in New York. But when we were there, I often went digging while he would be producing or writing because there were three used record stores, another that only had CDs, a huge used bookstore that sometimes they would have some boxes of vinyl 
And sometimes they would just sell me, they would save them for me knowing, oh, she'll be back. And they would just give me all the vinyl from the whole bookstore because they weren't selling music, they were selling books, but they knew whatever it was, I would buy it. And so I would often, while he was working, go to the store to get a bottle of wine or get groceries for dinner or go make copies or whatever it was in the neighborhood. A lot, most of the time, I would come back with more music. And so he would look and say, oh, put that on. And oh, like, let's just check this one out and see what that's like. And, you know, we just were always constantly listening to new old music. I mean, none of it was brand new. We were stuck in the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s, mid 80s. Um, And so, you know, in that era, like on Take Me to Your Leader, a lot of those samples came directly from a couple of records that I was listening to a lot when he was coming up. Um, And at a certain point, he was like, hey, can I just take can I take that? Can I sample that? Can I have that? Can I use this? Can I use that? And I would always just be like, yeah, go for it. You know, take whatever, um, take whatever you want. And so the only, the thing with that Nights Over Egypt um, sample, um, we made it as a co-production and as an instrumental, and I was going to sing on it. But then eventually somehow Rodan got a hold to it and it, it became um, his record he rapped over it and did like a little hook and it was called Ruler of Day and Night. That's the only actual co-production that I did with Doom. And I already knew the record I wanted to use and I knew how I wanted to do it. And um, he didn't have a computer at this time. I mean, I'm sure he had a home computer back in Georgia, but he didn't have a laptop. He didn't use my laptop. My laptop was just for work. And he was only using you know, hard drives and external equipment. Um, at that time, he mostly brought his SP-1200 and then he had a little mixing board and he had a mic and different stuff that he would bring to do, make do whatever he needed to do for that particular week or that particular month or those sessions or whatever it was, whatever process he was in. So I told him, you know, I want to use this part and I want, I want you to stop it here. And I kind of just sat and watched him um, do it on the SP and make the beat. And then I, I didn't do anything for a long time with any artist or any kind of produ- production or anything. Um, and then when um, I was building the studio with Flood, I started to you know have all the equipment and have all the tools to do it. And so sometimes I would sit down like, hey, you know, I really wanna do this myself. It had always been my dream. Um, and, you know, I've watched the best of the best make beats. I've watched A Plus from Hieroglyphics. I've watched Muggs. I've watched DJ mm-hmm. Khalil. All these people, I've sat behind them and watched them, their production styles and processes. And, you know, I had done everything but actually put my hands down myself and do it. And so, um, yeah, in October, a couple years back, I think it might have been 2021, October 2021, for one day, I just sat down and made like this huge batch of beats and they're on SoundCloud. I mean, I, I didn't do it in a long term. I just was like, I want to try this. And I didn't do it for people to rap over, although someone did. And I still have people reach me and ask me if they're for sale or can they rap on it or whatever. But I'm mostly just making these like for myself, just to fulfill, you know, something that I've always wanted to do. And uh, my partner in drums and ammo, DJ Ambush, he brought me a machine the other day. And I, nice. yeah, I just, just haven't even set it up yet, but I have it here and I have my turntable and I have a big stack of records and I have like 6,700 
digital samples that I've pulled that I've always wanted to use and that I've just like been compiling and I've put together a lot of sample packs for people drum kits for people it's just something that I do just because I have such like an extensive knowledge of records and especially old music and so you know I've always um, kind of put stuff together and given it to people I think that the the guys that I've talked records and talked music with Prince Paul and Dante Ross and DJ Muggs and Domino. These are people who are like deep, deep, deep knowledge of music, not just one genre, not just one era. And I've had it said to me many, many times. I don't, you know, that they don't know any woman who knows um, as much music as I do. And, you know, it's something that like literally, you know, I started, started dealing with this when I was still in the womb. So you know, I was born into this jazz household and always being around all these different genres of music and my father playing so many different genres of music and it just kind of always stuck with me and I've always been studying old music and I've never stopped and I mean, I'm still discovering old records to this day, you know, and I won't say I'm the only, I'm far from the only woman, but there's not that many real deep diggers that are women. There's, there's few. My homegirl, um, analog lady, she's in, an incredible, uh, knowledgeable person and Ms. Shingling, um, just to name a few, there, there are some, um, you know, there are some women out there who Natasha Diggs, there are Mona Lisa from LA. There are some, but there's not that many of us. We're pretty unique. <laughs> I'm a gearhead and I always talk gear with everybody and even when I was doing like the big magazines who couldn't have cared less about the gear and it got cut out of every article I ever wrote and none of it ever came out in print but still if I talked to Malib if I talked to DJ Premier if I talked to Khalil whoever I was talking to I wanted to know you know what are they recording with what are they using what do they have a keyboard have they studied any um, musicology or do they play any instruments or did they grow up playing an instrument or was their dad or their uncle or their mom in a band or like those are the things that have always interested me my mom was a drummer my dad was a bassist like I had to learn how to play the piano as a child I didn't have a choice you know I had to have vocal training and be in all these different choirs and do all this singing and music stuff because it was part of my bloodline and it was just something that you did you know like how most kids have to play like a sport or do some kind of after school activity right. I had to do all this music stuff it was not a choice I had to do my piano lessons and I had to practice it was not an option it wasn't a yes or no thing it was something that you know my father that's what you did yeah it's just what you did and so you know I have a, a great love for like the larger studios and the older ones and if I walk in somewhere and I see like a Fender Rose or something like that, I, I, you know, get weepy and teary-eyed. Or if I go somewhere and they have, like, you know, old equipment in there, I'm just always fascinated by that stuff. Probably because I grew up around it. And when we were little kids, my father was recording at the same places as, like, Quincy Jones was. And, you know, yeah. my brother and I would get parked in the lobby of a recording studio with a receptionist all day while my father was working and recording. And so 
you know, as little kids, we were only going to sit there, but for so long before we started running, literally running around the studio. And so like, if I wasn't on a sound stage, if I wasn't at a music festival, if my father wasn't performing, he was rehearsing or we were at a studio or we were somewhere going to get equipment to take to a session, or he was getting things that he needed for his electric bass because he was going to record on electric that week. And we had to go to the equivalent of guitar center now, or just whatever it was, it was always things with equipment and cables and amps and speakers and drum sets. And I mean, like literally since a child, when I literally came out of my mother's womb at home within a week, she had me in a bassinet next to her drum kit and they were rehearsing again and recording again. And I would be literally right there as a little tiny infant while a whole group would just be improvising and rehearsing and playing all this jazz music and sometimes rock and literally as a one, two, three day old infant. So that's my life. What's next for Willesha Shabazz as far as music? What's next on your plate? And are you looking to collaborate with anybody anytime soon? Well, I actually just came out on a record by Bombay, the realist who he produced Good To Be Home for Blue, that whole album. He produced every beat and he's an amazing producer from Southern California. So he's got an instrumental album called The Show Is Over Part Two. And um, I'm featured on four of the songs. So I'm just kind of talking like how I talked on Fancy Clown and, you know, on a few other albums that I've been featured on. And uh, Bombay and I are probably going to do some more work. I might be singing a little bit or talking on some more records. Um, I'm, I've been working on some production stuff, but I just want to really get like, get it to where I'm like really, really pleased with everything and also get to learn this new machine and mostly kind of just doing it so I can teach young people how to do it. I'm not doing it so I can become like some famous, you know, beat maker or like a producer or whatever. I mean, I, I, um, there's so many amazing women producers um, and I'd rather help them along with their careers, I think, and advise them and guide them more so than I would want to like really push hard on the gas pedal to try to be a producer myself. Right. Um, but I do love, I do love beat making in the process and stuff. So who knows? I mean, who's to say what might happen with it? Um, I've been writing a lot of songs for a long time. I've been writing since I was a kid, but we're talking with some different producers about recording some of it just as demos and taking it and selling it to R&B departments or A&Rs or major labels. And mostly just because like, I think a lot of the, the songs that are coming out nowadays are just kind of empty. Like the vocals are kind of empty and the lyrics are kind of empty and I know I can do better and I've been doing better. It's just never been presented or come out. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, just, teaching, mentoring, really wanting to have a nonprofit organization. I, I've worked ad hoc and one-on-one -on -one with some different young women, some related to me, some friends, children, um, and some just people contact me and they say, hey, you know, my niece or my daughter, she really wants to learn how to make beats and she's eight years old and, you know, we don't have a lot of money and we don't have a laptop for her and we don't have this and that. So I've just like either through donations or through private funding or through me paying myself sometimes um, have sent different equipment and different programs and stuff to some of these younger girls. And um, I would like to do that more. And I'd like to have a real program that does that. I've worked a little bit fundraising for this one called uh, women's audio mission out in San Francisco. I've never met them or been to an event, but 
they provide gear and scholarships and funding for women who are producing and engineering and working in audio. And since I don't have anything of my own set up yet, I just thought, well, hey, maybe if I can raise some money for them, they're doing these programs. Um, and there's another one, I think it's called um, Girls Making Beats, or I'm not sure if they're still around. They they were working for a while and I was driving people over to them if they were looking for things for their youth um, to get okay. them into programs. And, you know, that's what I really love to do is get um, legitimately under someone else's nonprofit for long enough that I was able to get my own and then kind of create an after school program or a youth program or really something for girls. Cause you know, as we talked about, my father prevented me from doing the things that I really wanted to do when I was young in music. Um, and then again, when it was college time and I wanted to become an audio engineer, he refused um, to pay for it. And I wasn't able to get scholarships or grants because of his money. So I wasn't able to pursue it. Um, and I really want, would like to be able to provide something for young women who either their family can't afford for them to have this kind of training or to have the equipment that they would need or who are in situations like mine where their parents either don't care or actually don't want them and are trying to bar them from living these dreams that they have. And I would want to be the person who has a platform and an organization that would prevent what happened to me from happening to any more young girls who really just have a dream, want to make music, want to learn, but don't have resources or, or who are blocked from resources. I would love to be one person who helps those little girls. You've been gracious for the past 36 years helping everybody and changing the trajectory of their careers. How can people support you? Where can people find you are online and support your career? Well, I have a lot of social media platforms and then I have some platforms for my writing. So I'll start with the writing ones. I have um, a blog on Medium. So that's Science N-O-O-R-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. That's noorscience.medium.com. That's uh, my largest blog site that has a lot of my work. Um, you can definitely reach me there. And on drumsandammo.com, D-R-U-M-S-A-N-D-A-M-M-O.com, drumsandammo.com. I'm doing a new magazine there that we're launching soon, as well as a record label working with the owner and founder, DJ Ambush. So a lot of my writing is there on the site already, and um, some exclusive content um, is there. I'm actually launching a new column there on Drums and Ammo called Talk Like Sex, and it's going to be... Uh, talking about just you know adult conversation with some um, different people in music and art and film and television and Hus Kingpin is the first subject we actually just finished the interview and I'm waiting for some art and that's going to go up on the site I'm really looking forward to this I'm so excited about that um, and then on social media I'm mostly Wallasia W-A-L-A-S-I-A that's on Twitter. Also, you can find me on Facebook as Wallacea. There's a fan page as well as a personal page. I think I'm the only Wallacea there on Facebook. Um, and then on Instagram, I'm Noor Science, the same as the blog. So that's N-O-O-R-S-C-I-E-N-C-E -E on Instagram. And that's how you can find me.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you on behalf of everybody listening for the past 36 years and the next 36 years to come. All this great work you've done and being involved with some of the best hip hop albums out there. Well, thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure talking to you. And I'm so thankful and grateful for all of your listeners who are tuning in to hear about my career. Um, and even, you know, going so far back that I was a big, big fan, you know, of your work before Fly Fidelity um, with Conspiracy Radio. So thank you for all of your work, too, because it's been a blessing, especially for me, um, you know, having access to what's going on in the UK and beyond. And part of a big part of that is the work that you've done. So I really appreciate that. To the clown, the clown symbolized by the face of the red, black, yellow, and brown. In the same situation, face down in the pavement, facing a life sentence for trying to feed the babies, getting so close to the money, but so far from the home, so quick to defend something we never own. Fixing packages of product cooked over the stove. For some, it's the only life they know. Is it the fault of the system or something within us? Conflicted, cause I know God, but I love bitches, I know wealth ain't everything, but I lust riches to make the situation better for me and my niggas. As much as I talk about it, it's gotta be somebody listening In the areas where we ain't got a pot to piss in It's blacks, Latins, and Asians in some bad conditions we live in The images on television and prison Life influences children more than politicians and religion I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people, are you with me where you at?